Magazines and Monsters, episode 28, Excalibur from 1981. Orion Pictures presents John Borman's Excalibur. One word, one king! They are warriors, lovers, kings, men of swords, sorcery, and desire. Their only fear is the pain of love. Excalibur, rated R. Now playing. Check newspapers for local listing. Hey, everybody. Billy D, a.k.a. Doc Strange here with another episode of the show. This is a special one because not only do I have two awesome guests, but an epic film to talk about as well. So please welcome back to the show, Karen from Planet 8 Podcast. How's it going, Karen? Hey, Billy. It's going great. Thanks for having me back on the show. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, you've been on a time or two and hopefully more in the future, but uh, I have a little story behind why I have the two guests on that I have on today. We'll get to that in a minute, <laughs> but uh, I also have on here uh, my buddy from uh, Into the Weird, the South African sensation himself, Herm. <laughs> How are you, buddy? <laughs> I'm great. Thanks, Billy, man. Uh, I, you should leave that South African sensation introduction for a superhero show, man. Here you should introduce me as, you know, one of the knights of the, at least not a round table, but probably at least oval sized. At least that's the way my desk looks over here. <laughs> so um, we're all three of us knights and uh, we're going on a quest this time around. And I'm looking forward to taking the journey with you guys. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about a humongous you know, film from 1981 called Excalibur. So this is a really big, huge production, long film, big cast, you know, so we're uh, we're going to get right into it here. So we're going to waste no time screwing around. Um, one thing that I didn't know until I looked up the information on this film, that it was filmed completely in Ireland. You know, I had thought maybe there were some location shots, but then just, you know, sets and things like that. But no, I would be wrong. You know, Orion Pictures from 1981. It was released on April 10th, uh, but filmed completely in Ireland. And then uh, <laughs> we have producer, director uh, John Borman here, who's uh, made some interesting films. Uh, uh, has he not? <laughs> <laughs> some of my favorite. Well, at least one other film that is a favorite of mine, which is the magnificent Zardoz. <laughs> yes. In a, a red diaper. Which I know, <laughs> I know Herm is also fond of, right? <laughs> Love that movie. Love that movie. Everything about it, it's, it's absolutely insane, but it reflects exactly everything I like about crazy, kooky films. <laughs> so, yeah, Karen, definitely. You and I, we, we had a long Twitter conversation once. I, I don't even know if you know that was with me, but I told you it was, so <laughs> you just have to take my word for it. And that, yeah, that was all about Zardos. So if Borman can get away with making a film like that, obviously he might not have gotten away with it because people described that as blasphemy and like ruining film forever. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I can I can get on board with anything he does for future projects. So yeah, I was I was right there for Excalibur <laughs> after after Zardos. Mm, my gosh, yeah, I saw that movie one time. And it was super late at night and <laughs> I kind of fell asleep in the middle of it and then woke up and I don't remember what scene it was, but I almost thought I was hallucinating. I thought I had eaten some bad <laughs> mushrooms or something because I was like, what is going on here? And I'm like, I guess. <laughs> app description. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think mm -hmm. I watched the rest of it and I thought, wow, I don't know what to think here. Maybe I need a revisit, but <laughs> so yeah. 
a couple other films, you know, Exorcist 2 and then Deliverance were uh, John Borman vehicles as well. So that'll kind of give you a, maybe a little peek into, you know, how he, you know, went with this film. But I think it's a pretty good adaptation of, you know, Arthurian uh, lore here. It's, it's, you know, it's got some really wild parts to it. But overall, I think it's not quite as off the rails as those other films oh, can no. be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so he really, he did a good job here. But the budget for this one, I was interested to see. Because, again, this is 1981. Budget, $11 million, And it grossed $35 million. And, obviously, in today's standards, that seems, you know, paltry. But for 1981 standards, you know, I don't think that's too bad. Like, it was pretty good. I think it was in the top 20 that year, you know, gross uh, for films. But that that did stun me a little bit there with the budget and then what it grossed and you know, like I said, with today's terms of these big budget films making, you know, taking hundreds of millions to make and then making billions, it's kind of hard to put into perspective sometimes. Yeah, it really is. I mean, when you see numbers like that, you think, well, this is like some sort of little independent production. Uh, but, you know, you have to kind of rejigger your thinking and and realize that, no, that, you know, that was a, a decent budget. And it, it's also interesting when you when you see the film, I mean, it has such impressive epic imagery and and then realize they did everything in camera i mean the special effects that they achieved and and again there's some very striking imagery uh, you know that obviously there's no cgi back then but they also just achieved it all with practical effects um and it's it's very impressive i mean a lot of times the things you see you realize oh okay this is you know uh, they're doing front projection or they're, you know, they're doing a forced perspective or whatever. But it, it's very, um, it's just so beautiful. And it's, it's uh, all the imagery, it, it's, you know, it comes across in a very um, dreamlike way. He, you know, he, it's a purposeful uh, effect that he's trying to achieve. It's like, yes, it doesn't necessarily always look realistic, but it, that's intentional. You know, mm, it, yeah. the, there's a complete uh, a, a look that he's going for and he he achieves it. I mean, it's very successful in what he's trying to get across with the look of the film. Yeah, we should air some dirty laundry here, too, because I hate it when this film shows up on podcast episodes or or even YouTube review channels where they say bad movies from the 80s or bad oh. fantasy films. I just absolutely hate that because uh. this film kind of kickstarted the whole fantasy craze this along with conan the barbarian of course Mm -hmm. uh but um this film was highly successful for its time you know uh, we they they're not even sure about the total gross if you count the the you know international market they're only you know sure about you know it made over 30 million in the u.s so it must have been at least twice that you know internationally and you know one thing you have to remember is that um Everybody who who pans this movie, who really hates it, always ends with saying that, but it's a great looking film. And, you know, mm-hmm. so even though they hate it, it might not be for the reasons they think they hate it, you know, because the the the, the shots, the settings, the camera work, the, you know, uh, the, the armor at, alone, you know, the oh. shining armor, there's something that you can mm-hmm. never get out of your head. It's like it's like someone hammered a, a pin or a nail into your brain, you know, a silver nail and it can't get, get pulled out. That's how you know, striking these uh, visuals are. And mm-hmm. I can never forget it. Maybe it also came at the right time as a kid when I watched it. I was into Arthurian lore just from, you know, listening to stories my mom and dad told me, you know, before mm-hmm. this was before I could read. 
And, um, mm. you know, they, for instance, my mom read T.H. Th. White's uh, The Once and Future King mm. to me. Uh, at least this is what she said. I can't really remember it. I reread it years later. And that's all about the Arthurian, uh, well, mm. some a part of the Arthurian legend, at least, as uh, Thomas Mallory, you know, wrote it in Le Morte to Arthur. Uh, so, you know, in the 15th century. So that part was my favorite, you know, the childhood of King Arthur. And uh, this opened the wider world to Arthurian myth for me because I was used to the T.H. White story, which you can see in The Sword and the Stone if you look at the Disney mm -hmm. cartoon, right? Mm -hmm. But right. then it, it made it serious for me. It's like, oh, crap, <laughs> this is the original <laughs> material. And I was very young when I saw this movie. I think I was, what, what was I, five or six when oh, I saw it. <laughs> so... <laughs> Very disturbing for a five or six year old. Mm. But Karen, listen, I, I want to ask you, though, can you cast your mind back and remember, did you see this in theaters or? Well, <laughs> so I'm a little bit older than you. Um, yeah, this Just is interesting. A well, a little more than <laughs> a little bit. But um, it's an interesting story with this movie. There were there were a number of films that I saw in the theater with my older brother and his friends. So I have a brother who's about six years older than me. And uh, he he took me and sometimes me and a friend to see these R-rated movies because we were, you know, uh, teeny boppers. <laughs> we, we couldn't get into the, the R-rated films. So I distinctly remember seeing um, Animal House, Alien, oh. <laughs> uh, <Yes>. and, this, <laughs> and, and Excalibur. I know there were a few others. But but those three films stand out in particular. And this film, I, I guess I was about, uh, I don't know, 15. Um, and of course, you know, it's like, oh, I'm thinking I'm going to go see, you know, Knights in Armor. And it's like, oh, that's cool. And kind of like uh, you, Herm, when I was a kid, we had this set of books that were about myths and legends. And I had mm. read about Arthur and Robin Hood and stuff. And so I'm, I have this preconceived notion in my head about, you know, Knights of the Round Table and, you know, very squeaky clean kind of image in my head. And so we're Wholesome. sitting there <laughs> you know, watching it. And of course, you know, the scene I'm thinking of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when Uther has been, you know, by illusion transformed into a Duke of Cornwall and goes in That's to eat grain. <laughs> and I'm yeah. just like in in horror like oh my god what's going on uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh no i was exactly mm, the yeah. same i was I, if i think if i think back on movies that really disturbed me as a kid but also made me want to come back to it it's this one and it's david cronenberg's the brood but it's also specific scenes um, the brood is the scene where, you know, this um, nanny has just been murdered or or the grandma, I forget, in the kitchen. And then this little dwarf creature who's this rage baby, you know, like um, he's got these bloody handprints on the stairs on, on the banister as he disappears. And uh, that scene disturbed me as a kid and it stuck in my brain and it gave me nightmares for years and years. And the scene of Uther showing up and just having his way with the grain. All thanks to Merlin, a good intentioned wizard, but basically he he's okay with advocating, you know, the, that violation. So um, that's not the Merlin I knew from the sword in the stone, <laughs> for God's sakes. <laughs> oh, with his skull cap. Actually, that's my favorite Merlin, this evil. Well, he's not evil. He's conniving. He's, he's, mm -hmm. he's actually a great Merlin. He's funny, he's humorous, but he's also up for doing these reprehensible things. 
Yeah, Karen, so I, I know exactly what you mean. You can't get those scenes out of your brain. So right. thanks a lot, Borman. But I really mean thank you because I, I love it now. But back as a kid, it's like, geez, what did you do to me, man? Well, and then, yeah, then it was... Oh, go ahead, Billy. I definitely saw this on television. You know, it, it, it aired like four <laughs> years later on CBS and was cut. You know, they cut out, you know, all the sex and uh, the mm -hmm. nudie, nudie stuff oh, for television for sure. So that's definitely where I saw it first. So so you didn't get traumatized like we did? Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> Not, yeah, by, by the time I saw the, the complete version of this movie, I was already very jaded and very much, much like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> it, didn't bother, it didn't bother me at all. <laughs> Oh, man, you, you were lucky. I, I mean, mm -hmm. what made it worse was then finding out years later that that was Borman's daughter. Mm. Yes. Yes. Oh, crazy. Mm. Very, very, very weird. Yeah. How could he have done that? I mean, as a director, I, I mean, I'm not the director, but if I can put myself in the director's shoes, I would want to keep and, and I was directing a film like that. I would not be able to live that down because you constantly get these images repeating of your head, you know, if you've got any imagination of things happening to your loved ones that you've just seen happening to them, even if it's not real, right? Mm -hmm. So I would not be able to do that. He was fine with it. He was completely fine with it. <laughs> you know, and his daughter was fine with it too. That's even more disturbing. She yeah. said the only person in the room who felt uncomfortable, this is from the recent documentary mm -hmm. from 2013. They, they had an, a, another one in the early 80s, but she said the only person who felt really uncomfortable was not her dad or herself. It was Gabriel Byrne. <laughs> <laughs> this poor guy was caught between these two maniacs directing him. Mm -hmm. No, Gabriel, do it like that. Mm, <laughs> Go <gosh. put> it <laughs> It's horrible. Well, along the lines of you guys saying about some of the visuals, you know, I just wanted to mention cinematography is uh, by Alex Thompson. That's the gentleman's name. And then, mm. you know, you, you had, uh, you know, an, a special effects of, you know, like five different guys that uh helped out with this one and had a hand in this one too and, and they were probably needed because like you guys said it was uh you know all practical effects so you really have to work hard to make that stuff work it's not like nowadays where it's just oh just throw in some cgi it, it doesn't work didn't work like that back then so that's definitely worth noting but yeah some of the cast you know you guys already mentioned a couple of them but you know we have you know leading off is uh nigel terry as king arthur and i did like how they actually had him play you know young arthur as in you know what what was he in the beginning here maybe late teens 20 at the most yeah, he was all the way up teen, until his yeah. death and an older older guy so i did like that about him yeah i thought he did really i know some people are like oh he's you know he's kind of wonky but uh, you know you try playing like an 18 year old and a you know 50 year old and see how well you do you know i mean uh i, I thought he pulled it off really well you know you have mm -hmm. the, the 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 young guy who is just kind of like not sure what's going on and really just wet behind the ears and then you know he has this dignity and gravitas later on um, and there's a there's some very interesting scenes in there too where you know he's trying to establish uh, the round table and he makes his mistakes and you know he does a really good job uh, of showing both. Uh, you know, his, his, his nobility and then his, his, uh, humanity. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. No, I mean, this is one of the the things that people don't always get when they review this movie. It's not supposed to be historically accurate. The people are, you know, the, the, the characters in it are speaking the way they speak and acting the way they act because it's an imagined version of a fantasy world. They never say it's England. They just call it the land. You know, they, mm -hmm. they don't talk about other countries, even though Lancelot is it's it's um, mentioned that he might be from, let's say, for instance, France or so forth. But, you know, um, they, they all speak in what I like to call Thor speak, you know, and uh, they, they speak in these. Oh, these, I love uh, it. Epic, yeah, these epic imaginary speech patterns that they have and, and mm -hmm. vocabulary, arcane vocabulary that they use. Or maybe I should say archaic. Merlin's the arcane one. He uses the arcane mm -hmm. vocabulary with this, this spell of making that he has, which is based off of Gaelic. And, you know, but but. Every time they deliver, these guys, you can see that they come from the stage. They're theater actors. I mean, Patrick Stewart's probably the best example. Helen Mirren. And even even Liam Neeson came from the stage, you know. And um, mm -hmm. uh, Merlin, the actor, uh, Nicole Williams, he had a, a botched uh, theater performance with Helen, Mir Mir uh, Helen Mirren earlier. And that's why they refused to work together initially. And so eventually they aired, you know, out their differences and they 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 played off well against each other because they were enemies, I guess. But, you know, the point is that these people delivered epic performances mm. based off of mythical figures. And that's mm -hmm. the, and so who cares if the armor is not if it's anachronistic, uh, if right. you know, because it's supposed to be fifth and sixth century, right? Um, based off of uh, Mallory's book, you know, so it's like Roman era Britain, maybe, uh, you know, Emperor Constantine era. So Mm -hmm. uh, but who cares? This is a fantasy story. There's no lady in the lake. That's not part of Christian mythology. There's no, they don't even mention Christ in relation to the the grail at all. In fact, mm -hmm. Arthur is, you know, presented as the, the godhead in this movie uh, mm -hmm. or indirectly the land, your mother nature. That's that's very pagan. And, you know, so people forget to take that into account. This is not a historical, a historically no. accurate movie. It's not intended mm -hmm. to be. So, no. so screw them for trying to always like impose that on this film. And, and that speaks to what you guys are also saying about, you know, how these actors, like for instance, um, King Arthur, uh, Nigel Terry, how he delivers his performance, you know, it sounds stunted or, uh, and a little bit, uh, you know, a, a too artificial or robotic, but it's not, it's just, you know, the, the way he interpreted the character and he's actually a great theater character. So you definitely know he's got the acting chops and the, you know, the means to deliver, you know, whatever the director mm -hmm. wants. Yeah. Yeah. And then you mentioned Helen Mirren, and she's one of those people that I look at and I think, you know, life's not fair. So not only is, <laughs> is, she, a really, what? is she a really good actress, <laughs> she's gorgeous too. Like this movie is like, so this is a great performance from her because again, top notch actress. And then she's like gorgeous too. I'm thinking this isn't fair. Life isn't fair. She has everything going. <laughs> Oh, I, like I, I thought she's getting better looking as she gets older somehow. It's yeah. crazy. Oh, yeah. She's yeah, still she, very, she's very attractive. striking. I, mm -hmm. I was confused there for a moment. I thought you meant life isn't fair because you're not Liam Neeson. Because <laughs> at that point in time, weren't Helen Mirren and Liam Neeson hooking up while yeah. they were filming? Yeah, yeah I, think I think so. They, yeah. they started a relationship. <laughs> Damn. So, yeah, that is unfair that both of us weren't. You know Liam Neeson's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, but she was great in this one. I really loved her in this film. And then, you know, we have uh, another one of the big players, uh, Nicholas Clay. He was Lancelot, where he was pretty good too. You know, he came into the film, you know, uh, maybe about uh, a third of the way in, and 
Uh, I liked his character quite a bit too. And, um, you know, uh, Paul Jeffrey as Percival, another character that comes in, you know, halfway probably through the movie. And like you mentioned, uh, my favorite, uh, Nicole Williamson, you know, Merlin himself. I, he was great in this one. I really loved it. Because <laughs> I always liked, you know, characters, you know, uh, no big shock, you know, her with you and I with Into the Weird and Loving Doctor Strange. I love magical characters like that, too. So what did you guys think about those guys? It, it's interesting because, um, oh, gosh, now I'm forgetting his name. The uh, actor for um, Percival. You just mentioned oh, him. Oh, Paul, uh, Jeffrey. Paul Jeffrey. Paul Jeffrey. Yeah. I, I guess originally he was up for the role as Arthur. And, yeah, uh, that's true. And didn't, didn't get it. I watched that same, I think it's the same documentary you watched, Herm. And uh, he, he mentioned that. And uh, he got Percival instead. And I really liked him as Percival. And he was another actor similar to Arthur who had to go from being sort of this young country bumpkin character uh, and yeah. then, you know, through sort of an accident becomes a knight. And then he has, you know, a very grim journey as as uh, a grail knight. That's right. That's where the horror aspect of this movie comes in, because if you think about it, the last uh, let's say almost the, the entire last act is act is completely uh, in the horror vein a little bit. I mean, there's scenes mm -hmm. in there that uh, that's second only to the to, like we say, the the scene in the bedroom in the beginning there. But, um, man, I was disturbed when I was a kid, seeing that tree, seeing Percival's journey, you know, the suffering. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. Percival is a great actor because he sold that last part of the movie for me. You know, he's hey, present at Arthur's, you know, at the very end. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. So fantastic actor. And all of these guys, I mean, they, their careers were kickstarted by this movie. This was Gabriel Byrne's first film. He plays mm -hmm. Uther. He's there right, right through the first act. And then, you know, Paul Jeffrey, although many of them went back to theater, you know, and and many of them have passed away by now, too. Yes. But um, yeah. Helen Mirren, Liam Neeson. OK, arguably this kicked off Helen Mirren's career, but Liam Neeson only found fame later with Darkman in, in the early 90s. Right. But still, this this was his first film, you know, a big time, you know, big budgeted film for its time. You know, 11 million is nothing to sneer at for a British production. So uh, this this film was immensely successful in that, you know, if you think about that perspective, about them, you know, starting the careers of all of these uh, heretofore unknown actors. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I loved all of their performances. I, I, I almost uh, sound, you know, disingenuous because I can't really criticize this film a lot. The only person I sometimes criti criticize is uh, Lancelot because he looks permanently stoned. <laughs> and uh, then, you know, really, he looks like he's always placid and that he smoked some weapons grade hashish or something that he brought over from France <laughs> or wherever. This this mythical France. And then at the end, he shows up as a hobo. <laughs> that's that's my favorite part when he's yeah. like kind of berserk and he's all shaggy. That's yeah. my favorite part of his performance. Yeah. yeah, he's like the opposite of what he was, very reserved and calm. He turns into a, a bit of a lunatic at the end, and that's that's fun, too. Yeah, but mm -hmm. oh, and I, I wanted to mention to uh, Guinevere, I almost feel like she got a little bit of a short shrift in this film. She didn't really get too many lines of dialogue or anything there, but the actresses, Sherry and uh, I'm going to butcher her last name. Is it Lungi? Lungi, yeah. Lungi, something like that. It's a very Lungi. hard name for me to pronounce, but yeah, beautiful lady, but she didn't get very many lines in the film. You know, not that 
it was necessary for her to have many lines in the film, but she, yeah, she, I just kind of felt like I watched it a couple of times in the last week or so. And I thought, boy, I wonder why she didn't get more lines in the film. You know, she really seemed to kind of take a backseat to everybody else. And you figure she was, you know, King Arthur's wife there for a while. And obviously a major player with the Lance a lot too. So I don't know how you guys mm-hmm. felt about that. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem like, well, they're, you know, they did play off of the, uh, Guinevere Lancelot illicit romance a little bit there because of course they have to break up the the round table but uh you're right Billy they they didn't give her a lot to do really um but it's a pretty crowded cast so I guess somebody had to get the short end of the stick and it turned out to be her Mm, yeah I remember hating her as a kid because I was firmly in Arthur's camp (laughs) <laughs> Always have been, you know, because I, you know, Lancelot was never present during those childhood stories that I read. You know, he came on later and uh, I saw that as the ultimate betrayal. Uh, you know, you 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 like a character and then all of a sudden you see how could she pick this guy over the king? <laughs> but obviously Lancelot <laughs> is, you know, he's 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 excellent. But still. Mm-hmm. So but, you know, as an actress, she's great. I think she sold it really well. And they've got a very powerful scene there. Once they forgive each other or once Arthur forgives her and she briefly became a nun and <laughs> went into the convent <laughs> mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And uh, they've got a great scene there. And I always remember the dialogue there where Arthur says that, you know, he's going off to war. This might be the last time he sees her. But and then she hands him Excalibur again. And then he says, you know, he, he wishes that they could be together again. And, and it's a dream he has. And mm-hmm. I remember that line as a kid, too. It's a great line. Yeah, but um, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. That's later on in the story. That's well into the third act. But um, yeah, no, I I agree. She wasn't very present if you compare it to the rest of the cast. Yeah, for sure. And then you had mentioned uh, Gabriel Byrne. He's a Uther Pendragon, and we're going to see him here in the first act. And then I definitely wanted to mention uh, Sir Patrick Stewart as Leon de Grants <laughs> as well. You know, oh yeah, uh, the captain of the Enterprise. He was on full display here in the first act. I liked him a lot. <laughs> you read my mind, Billy. I was just thinking, oh, you know, we haven't mentioned Patrick Stewart. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and this so, is definitely the first time I ever saw him. I was just like, oh, wow, holy smokes, back then. Because, of course, you know, everybody, he's a household name now, but he certainly wasn't back then. It, it's so funny to watch it now and go, yeah, there's Patrick Stewart. And it's like, you know, it's so, like, bizarre to think, like, he's wearing a suit of armor and <laughs> he's riding a horse and, you know. Uh, oh, my goodness. Yeah, great, great fun to see him, you know, in that role. And, uh, yeah, he goes up and he tries to pull Excalibur out of the the stone. But then, you know, once uh, once Arthur does it, you know, he he, he supports him fully, but... Uh, yeah, fun seeing fun seeing uh, Stuart do that, and I know uh, in the documentary he comments on how uh, they had to wear the armor all day, and it was very oh, yeah. tiring. <laughs> yeah, I guess yeah. wearing yeah. wearing a Starfleet uniform is a little easier than wearing armor all day. <laughs> For yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. That's why they blundered around so much during combat, and why they were allowed to just, you know. Um, sort of do whatever they wanted there was no fight choreography because in armor you couldn't really have fight choreography not in that armor so that's why you see them like bumping against each other all the time stumbling (laughs) over and sometimes someone would get clocked on their head by somebody who was not supposed to hit them you know it was a mess but they made it work in the editing room apparently this is what the well, I got the impression too that Borman sort of enjoyed just watching them go after each other (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> Sadistic bastard that he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, we then... know how he likes to have men torture men, you know, from deliverance. So, <laughs> oh, my Lord. Oh, boy. <laughs> Armorer, too. Um, Terry English, I guess, you know, initially they said, well, we're going to need like seven suits of armor. And then they come back a little bit later and it's like, well, maybe 14. He eventually, he and his crew wound up making like 106 suits of armor. Wow. Holy <laughs> moly. <laughs> so, wow. crazy. here is money. That's crazy. Mm. But get, getting back to Patrick Stewart, I derailed you guys from him for the uh, for, for the mm. moment there. The, don't you guys find that's a delicious piece of overacting when he tried to pull the sword from the stone <laughs> that first time? I mean, the, he, he <laughs> cried. He cried. You know, he, he like, oh, 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 my, oh. <laughs> you know, it's like one of my favorite Patrick Stewart scenes. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, that was my favorite scene of Patrick Stewart, even long before I saw Star Trek The Next Generation. And then after Excalibur, I saw Dune and he was Gurney Halleck in Dune. And he had this great scene where he was like, you young pup. And then that scene <laughs> eclipsed the Excalibur scene. And then, you know, obviously got to, uh, well, I think he was in They Live as well, wasn't he? Or no, 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 he was in Life Force. Life Force. Life Force. I, those I two was just going to mention Life Force. <laughs> and in Life Force, he was great. And then I saw him as Captain Picard. And, you know, so every time he eclipsed himself in my mind, and then I rewatched Excalibur, and then this became my favorite scene again. So we came full <laughs> circle back to this pulling the sword out of the stone scene of him like, <laughs> <laughs> and then he just gives up and he's like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to him in his life. He just collapses. <laughs> and, and the best part of it is after he like flings his arms wide and, you know, yeah, collapses and the, the crowd all just slumps and walks away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's like we've seen this him. before. Yeah. Leon de Grens, that's his name in this movie. It's, a, it's an epic name, almost as epic mm -hmm. as Gurney Halleck, but uh, yeah, not as epic as Picard, you know, not as epic mm -hmm. sounding now, but yeah, Leon de Grens. <laughs> uh, so yeah, <laughs> Stewart always brings it. I've never seen him in anything uh, where he didn't give his utmost to the role and to the performance. And even when he overacts, he, he does it masterfully. So yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. welcome addition to the cast here, Sir Patrick. For sure. And then you had mentioned Liam Neeson as well. He was Sir Gawain and he uh, he definitely has a, a part to play in this movie. That's a uh, pretty important. And uh, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that later. So. All right. Well, if you guys are ready, you know, if anything else to say about the cast or production or anything like that, if you don't have anything else to say, we can get rolling here into the uh, the movie. Well, I have one more thing that I forgot to mention. I just glanced mm -hmm. at my notes here. One yep. thing you have to remember is, Karen, you mentioned earlier that this was an immense undertaking to make this movie uh, from the director and, of course, from everybody involved and, in, you know, the, the setting up the, the scenes and uh, building the <clears throat> castles and everything and the costume design. But this has been a project long in the making for Borman, but it had mm -hmm. an evolution of a sort, right, Karen? Yes. Now, you would know this if you look at the documentary. And, mm -hmm. and he initially wanted to, um, he wrote a screenplay for a movie based solely on the character of Merlin. And that was in the late 60s, actually early 60s that he started to get the idea. But the screenplay sort of coalesced uh, in the late 60s. And then he shopped it around. And then eventually the the places he, you know, the, the movie production companies he showed it, to saw that the budget for such an undertaking would be too expensive. So they rejected him and then they decided, okay, this guy's obviously into these epic, you know, um, 
mythical story. So why not give him Lord of the Rings? Mm-hmm. So he was gonna he was gonna develop and direct a live action Lord of the Rings series in the early seventies, and Tolkien even phoned him, and 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 gave him his blessing. Uh, after he sold wow. the film rights, of course, and he said he asked him lots of questions. How are you going to do this? Please, God, don't make it an animation. Apparently, <laughs> Tolkien wow. did not want to because many people were saying the scenes in Lord of the Rings would not be possible to film, you know, with current technology and special effects. But then, you know, um, the they started working on the Lord of the Rings treatment, and then that fell through. And then eventually it went to Ralph Bakshi, who made a great cartoon, but it's solely for kids, I think. Although there were very dark things in that cartoon. Yeah. It's definitely Black Cauldron-ish, you know, mm. but um, I loved it. I love Bakshi. But this is part of that. You know, Excalibur mm-hmm. is John Borman incorporating everything he's learned over a 15-year period of trying to get something like this made. Merlin and then The Lord of the Rings and then Merlin again. This is him finally getting to do that. And, um, you know, that's I think that's something that bears mentioning is the fact that this started off as a as a Merlin, then a Lord of the Rings vehicle and then went back to to the Arthurian uh, myth. So interesting, very interesting. But, yeah, that's it. That's my final piece of notes for that. But we can get rolling, Billy. Sorry for that uh, aside there. (laughs) No, I I think that's essential, Herm. I had it in my notes, too. (laughs) Yeah. you can you, and you can kind of see that also. I mean, in a, a very strange way, in Zardoz too, because yeah. oh yeah, you know it has Good that point. same sort of fantasy quest mm. feel. You know, yeah. I mean, he's taken the Wizard of Oz thing and kind of planted that over it. But yeah, he That's obviously right. had this desire to do this sort of mythic storytelling, and yeah. uh, it took a long weird route but he finally got to do it with Excalibur yeah that's right that's right and and it was a success for me I mean this is the best thing that Borman's done in my mind personally oh, I yeah. think other people might debate it but I think it stands the test of time because can you guys think of any other Arthurian movie that has ever been successful or if, has ever been faithful to the original material I can't the closest I can come I mean don't even mention Guy Ritchie's recent pathetic attempt <laughs> at the dark I didn't story. even see that it was, oh it was so horrible it looked I went so to see bad it during the theaters <laughs> it was so bad that was just before COVID hit too so that was probably one of my last movies in theaters Ugh. and uh, then the only one that comes really close and I'm not counting Sword in the Stone here because it's not the complete story the only one that comes close is that mini series from I think it was from New Zealand sta- starring Sam Neill in the late 1990s I don't know if you guys saw it but it was like a mini series with Mm-mm. with Sam Neill as Merlin and that covered oh. the complete story. Oh, you've never seen that guy? No. 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 It's it's just called Merlin. Now, this is not the TV show Merlin. This is a a mini series that came out. So it's like I think um, three episodes, uh, like an hour long, hour and a half long per episode. So it gives you a good chunk, like six or so hours of 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 um, the entire story. And it's it's comes damn close, you know. So I would say track that down. Look for Sam Neill's Merlin. Yeah. And, um, Lots of other great actors in there too, you know. You've but but the story's been, you know, changed. Obviously, it's not Morgana, uh, Morgan Le Fay, you know, whatever you want to call her as the villainess. Mm-hmm. This is Queen Titania from Fairyland, who's been substituted for Morgana. But you know, Mordred's still there. The rest is still the same. So interesting one. Uh, 
but significantly different to to make it not as successful as Borman's vehicle, which is the best ever interpretation, even down to the look, right? I mean, even before you've seen Excalibur, you know what Knights in Shining Armor looks like. This movie tops that, whatever you had in your imagination. Yes. This movie takes that to the next level that you didn't even know existed. So, yeah, that's why it's always going to be the best. So let's continue with the synopsis. Billy, you're going to give us just a short one to introduce the storyline, Rand, and then we're going to run with it. Yeah, absolutely. So I do love the way this film starts out. I mean, you get a completely black screen, and then you get this little bit of a buildup from some awesome music. Well, we'll get into the soundtrack after we talk about the you know the film itself oh, yeah. here. But uh, yeah, you get this like eerie music that slowly builds up, and it just says the Dark Ages. And then it says the land was divided and without a king. And then we get out of the lost centuries rose a legend of the sorcerer Merlin, of the country of a king, and of the sword of power. And I really like that, how that just, you know, that's how it comes in. And then, boom, Excalibur, and, it, you know, the music really kicks in there. You know, what do you guys feel about that? Oh, I think it it was a perfect opening. You know, like you said, it, it's very stark and very powerful. And just prepares you for the what's what's going to come. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you need that. Yeah, it's it's uh, the perfect way to open a movie like this, a fantasy epic. I mean, Star Wars did the same, you know, with the oh, scroll. And uh, mm-hmm. also, you know, Conan did the same with his father having the introduction to the riddle of steel in the beginning. And it's a different way of presenting the, the world, but it's a fantasy world. So you kind of need some extra information. I think they do that in Dune, too. Um uh, with uh, the Princess Ireland, she sort of introduces the the movie in the beginning, you know, mm-hmm. because any universe this complicated, you kind of need some extra material before you can just get thrown in in there. Mm-hmm. And um, they opted for that. And it was the, the wise decision because, you know, it, it gets you right into that world and that mindset even before the, the first visuals. So you're already looking forward to what you're going to see. Yeah, because this I like epic it. story. Yeah, this epic story has just been presented to you in just a few lines. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, there you go. Your imagination is running wild. Yeah, it's short. It's to the point, and boom. I mean, it's like I said, it just gets you right into then the opening scene, which is you know a fierce battle, which we already kind of alluded to a little bit, which is you know Uthar and uh, his uh, forces against the Duke of Cornwall, and there's just you know swords and axes and blood flying everywhere. It's not super gory or bloody, but it's pretty intense, you know. What I mean, that's that's a pretty intense opening scene, and we see, you know, uh, Uther then uh, saying to uh, Merlin, who's watching there, that he's, you know, he wants the sword, he wants the sword, and you know, Merlin basically said, you know, hey, listen, you're going to get the sword, but the sword isn't for just, you know, chopping people's heads off. There's a bigger meaning to it, you know. Yeah. And then and then we switch into, you know, Merlin at uh, a lake, and I love that scene too. It's just oh, gorgeous. Yeah, it's um, it, it's interesting. Like now, we we've seen so many um, battle scenes that are really brutal and and harsh that are set in these sort of you know medievalish times. I mean, you can look at like what Peter Jackson did in Lord of the Rings, like in, especially in the Two Towers, and you're used to seeing this kind of fast action with hacking and slashing. But I, I think Excalibur was the first time I had ever seen like knights in armor really, you know, going at each other like that. I think before any time I had seen uh, uh, 
armored combatants, it was all very stagey and like, I'll hit you, now you hit me. And it was, you know, very (laughs) civilized. And and this was not civilized in any way. It was, you really felt that like life and death uh, uh, action, you know, like these guys are really wailing the crap out of each other. So it was you know, upon first viewing, it was it was very shocking. And and even now seeing it again, uh, the level of brutality is still there. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And 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 Merlin and Uther's interactions are very intriguing, especially when you take them in in reference to how he interacts with Arthur is very different. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, Uther's more driven by his passions rather than rationality. So Merlin yes. kind of has to play play to to that because um, Uther is unwilling to compromise, and then Merlin is his conscience, and that's something he never needed with with uh, Arthur later on. With Uther, he had to sort of use force or manipulation. With Ar- Arthur, he could use guidance. So mm-hmm. that's why he made the right decision to not. Um, support Uther indefinitely as the king of of the land, as they call it. Let's call it Britain, but you know, I like that that the concept of just the land because the land is tied to the body of the king through Excalibur. So mm-hmm. Excalibur is sort of like, and and Uther was poisoning the land. You know, um, right. he wasn't worthy of Excalibur, but Merlin did not foresee that because he doesn't really have a clear sort of sight or premonition here, but. You know, it's definitely tied into the old world legends of these gods who are fading. And you have Merlin having a speech when he speaks to Morgana about that later on, about the old world is making way for the new the new god uh, and the mm-hmm. old gods are dying. And the Lady of the Lake is one of them, presumably. And she's the one, you know, trying to l- allow humans to sort of live in harmony with nature through Excalibur, which is something humans revere. So rather than make a sword the symbol of destruction, humans destroying nature, why not make the sword something that unifies humanity and nature again? Um, And use the symbol, turn it around, make it something of hope rather than a symbol of dread or death. And uh, Uther, though, immediately he gains the power of the sword, and all he thinks is this is the power sword. <laughs> this is like he <laughs> pulling it up and saying, I have the power. And then basically Merlin's like, no, you're wrong. Right off the get-go, he's, he, he knows he's made a mistake, and then he has to get him to compromise. But this is where the, the story gets in full swing, because the battle is done. The, the last remaining bastion, or the last uh, rebels against Uther, are is the Duke of Cornwall and his men. And then they compromise after the Duke sees that Merlin has, in fact, gifted Uther with Excalibur. So this this speaks to me of, I mean, and this is not uh, in the books, but or, or in the stuff I've read and probably not in Thomas Mallory's book either, that Excalibur has this mythic quality to it that folks know that what it is. It's not something new that just appeared from the lake. It has been in this world before and it has returned to the lake, sort of like the cycle of rebirth and and destruction and death and then rebirth again. So did you guys get that feeling as well, that everybody knows the legend of Excalibur, even though it just appeared out of the lake a couple of hours ago? Mm-hmm. And they repair oh, yeah. the sword yeah, right, oh, yeah. right away. Oh, 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 yeah, because Merlin, you know, makes reference to it being around since the dawn of time. So I just kind of assume that, you know, even if it's lore that no one has seen it before, that it's been passed down from uh, past generations, that it's, you know, uh, this symbol of power and, 
whoever wields it basically is, you know, kind of quote unquote in charge. That's what do you right. think, Karen? Yeah, I don't know if I thought as much as that it that they understood that it, you know, if they knew it about it from legend or that if it just on its own manifested some sort of power that people mm. could sense, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, good point. Yeah. So many times when you see the sword uh, in a in a shot, you notice that there is this um, green light that is uh, either directly yeah. on the sword or projected around the sword. And I, right. I I took that to mean that it you know it emanates power. It emanates some sort of energy that that must be impacting the people around it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And oh, yeah. so yeah. I assume everybody is like feeling this from, from Excalibur. Um, yeah. That's so a good yeah, point. whether, whether they knew about the legend, maybe it was both. They knew about the legend. And then when, when whoever was wielding it, held it up, they could, you know, just feel the innate power of Excalibur. Yeah. And that's when we get to the bit where, you know, the Duke of Cornwall, initially he bows, but he wants, he wants some, you know, recognition as uh, a leader. So Merlin, you know, he prompts Uther to give him land, you know, in order to avoid future bloodshed. And initially Uther's reluctant, but then he bows to Merlin's wisdom. And then things are going mm-hmm. fine, but then... Billy, what happens oh once they have the, the after party? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. The Duke of Cornwall's like, all right, cool. Let's go have a big party at my castle. And as they're all there drinking and having a good time, then uh, the Duke says, "You know, Uther, you might be the king, but you'll never have a queen like uh, my woman." And then we meet uh, Igraine, who uh, is uh, quite the beautiful woman, and proceeds to put on some uh, dance. And it uh, uh, riles up, <laughs> to say the least, uh, <laughs> Uther and his men. And his men are smart enough to say nothing but just ogle. But Uther can't control his libido and uh, kind of uh, <laughs> gets a little too uh, excited. And the Duke notices this. And uh, the next thing you know, it's uh, back to war. <laughs> if you want to get Robert E. Howard about it, you would say... Uh, a fire was stirred in his loins. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So Karen, what do you think about this scene? I mean, we've mentioned this is Borman's daughter, but um, I mean, the whole setup to this is very interesting. You can see things are going to go south pretty quick. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's the whole problem with Uther. Like you said, he he's can't control his passions. He He barely accedes to to Merlin's uh you know uh commit not command but you know he barely says okay yeah I'll I'll let this guy keep his land um you know there then they're mm. you know celebrating and he's he's already saying you know I got to have this guy's wife and it's like he <laughs> you know I think Merlin knows that like Uther is not the guy he's trying to make him the guy but he knows he's not the guy and and even though he may not be able to clearly see the future, he's trying to lay down some plans, you know. Um, but yeah, it's just Uther is his own worst enemy, you know. Every turn, he he just can't control himself. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you can just see it, like he as a fighting man, 
yes, he's probably an excellent fighting man, but as a leader and a king, he's terrible. <laughs> he just yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, he can't do it. And um, well, and I, but I would also say the Duke of Cornwall. You know, probably not a great idea to have your wife go out and gyrate in front of other people. Mm, you know? Yeah, bad choice there. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, not, not so good. Yeah, I even baited Uther there with his taunts and with, you know, the, the, the words that he would never have a wife as you know great as Egraine. So he sort of uh, sowed his own uh, destruction there or reaped his own destruction. But... You know, um, uh, I like the fact that Merlin managed to twist the situation to his advantage because like you guys mentioned, he saw that this was not going to work. So he decided, mm -hmm. hey, okay, let's let's get something out of this. Let's, um, you know, since Uther wants to have this woman and I'm going to let him have his way with her using my magic, but I'm going to use the product of whatever comes from this uh, this event mm -hmm. to um, save the world, to save the land. And that turns out, obviously, to to be what he does. And it, it's a plan that works. But it also works against mm. him because the evil is present while that act occurs. It's an evil act. Make no mistake. Mm -hmm. But um, the evil is present in the form of uh, the Duke of Cornwall's daughter with Igraine. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to that. But, you know... <laughs> I like that that Merlin was, you know, manipulating events so that he would get something out of this, but still let Uther have his way, you know. So in order to avoid the, the deaths of hundreds or thousands, even, you know, um, just to, to get give Uther his desire so that he knows that they'll be quenched, and then maybe mm -hmm. there will be peace afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uther seeks Merlin's help because you know he's trying to you know attack uh, the Duke of Cornwall and he's not making any headway uh, busting into the castle to steal Igraine and Merlin makes him swear that he will grant him something and Uther then swears on Excalibur so you know it's like one of those deals where he did it so he's gonna have to give him whatever he wants down the road but how about the whole Merlin summoning you know air quotes the dragon I think that's really interesting you know so this isn't like a physical dragon it's something very very different so uh, what did you think there Karen? Yeah, I really liked the way they handled Merlin's magic in this. Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways, it's very subtle. It still achieves his his aims, right? So he he does the charm of making, and I've always been able to remember that since the movie. Yes. You know? You know, he he does it over and over again. And, of course, later we hear, uh, you know, Morgana do it. Um, but, yeah, the summons the dragon, which, you know, manifests as fog um, around the uh, – he looks to be up on a like a point kind of overlooking uh, Cornwall's uh, uh, fortress. And so mm – -hmm. It's still, even though there's nothing like crazy, spectacular, no dragon flies in or whatever, it's very mysterious. It's very mystical that this fog kind of comes in and, you know, he tells Uther, you know, ride. And he tells him basically to ride across the fog. So, of course, you know, there's this fear element, too, that comes in like, oh, what's going to happen to him? And as he he takes this leap of faith and rides across the fog. He's transformed into the appearance of the Duke. 
you know, of course, we have the wonderful soundtrack to also, mm. you know, mm. complement the uh, the feeling, the magical feeling. But yeah, the the magic in this. I was thinking about that earlier today. You know, what what? How does the magic manifest? And a lot of it is almost more on a psychological level. It's like you don't yeah. necessarily see big, you know, fireworks going off or anything like that. But but the magic is sort of it's there and you feel it and it's very powerful. But uh, you know, if you're looking for you know explosions and things like that, yeah. you're not going to get that. But it's it's almost it, to get to what Herm was talking about before. It, it's like you know it's it's starting to disappear from the world, but it is sort of ever present. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. It's like Merlin is the last. Uh practitioner of this ancient art well later he'll teach more mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but um i like the fact that he is the the link between the old world and the new in this you know so he's he's sort of championing the the values of the old world but he realizes he can't uh stop change so he yeah. would rather have someone like arthur at the throne or he would create his own savior uh, so in order to consolidate the old and the new rather than destroying the old in favor of the new. And uh, you can feel that magic is very much the basis of, you know, the means that he uses to manipulate this. And there's sort of a return to magic at the end. Uh, but, um, you know, which which sort of negates what Merlin's saying at one point in time, that magic will fade. Uh, but, you know, that's just my interpretation. Basically, you like you say, Karen, you feel this this sinister effect at first, but you have the intimation from Merlin that it could also be turned towards good. And in fact, this evil act that he is now allowing and and even sanctioning with his magic is um, for the greater good. Now, what this mm -hmm. say about Merlin's morality is highly questionable. <laughs> but, you know, I always explain this to myself as Merlin is not human. You know, he's not a man. Right. He's half a man. I mean, if you think about Merlin's mythology, his father was a demon or in some, you know, uh, myths, he was he, ne he never had a father. He was like immaculately conceived, almost like, you know, a couple of other religious figures, not just Jesus. <laughs> it's a thing for them. But um, yeah, so, you know, he's not human. He he sort of um, plays at being human. And so this might have been just a misstep on his part, or it might have been just him saying that, you know, humans will, if they desire something, you kind of just don't stand in their way. Otherwise, you're going to get trampled. So that's why he did this. But I don't think he has much feeling towards humanity, individuals as a whole. He he sort of cares for the bigger picture, life maybe, uh, the life of the land. And that's why he's willing to sacrifice, let's say, the, the dignity of someone like Igraine and have her subjected to this horrible act, which then mm. births something positive for the world. But I don't like what Borman's trying to say here. <laughs> you know, <what> I mean? <laughs> this is not just Borman. Of course, this is from the original story as well. Yeah, it's uh, Merlin is like, and the end justifies the means kind of guy. That's kind of how yeah. I look at him in this movie. He's he's willing to do whatever it takes to do what he thinks you know will be the best end result, which we know sometimes is not always. Uh, not always something to uh, admire for sure, but yeah. So here we go. Like you guys said, it's uh, you know Merlin uh, tries to help by you know making this dragon you know this uh, mist rise and 
Uther jumps on his horse and says, you know, hey, but I'm not going to jump off a cliff. And Merlin tells him, like, hey, have some faith here. Your uh, your lust and your this and that will, uh, you know, your emotions basically will uh, provide the bridge to get over to the, uh, the Duke of Cornwall's castle because he left with his men to go chase down Uther's men who, uh, you know, acted like, oh, hey, we're leaving. And uh, then we get the... You know, the the scene we've been alluding to where, uh, you know, U- uh, Merlin uses his magics to disguise Uther and make him appear as the Duke of Cornwall. And he enters the castle and then uh, finds Igraine up in their uh, boudoir and <laughs> Morgana, who is just a child right there in the room. What is she? Maybe eight years old? Maybe 10 maybe. at the most? I would think maybe uh, she's there to witness then. uh you know, basically, Uther, you know, rape Igraine because she thinks it's her husband coming in the room. And it's uh, pretty disturbing when you think about it. I mean, like, we touched on it already, but man, wow. What do you what do you think? Oh, it, yeah, it, it, it's rough. That whole combination of what you just put out. He, I mean, Oof. he's in full armor. He, he just sort yeah. of grabs her and starts you know, going at it. And then, yeah, Morgana's over there in the corner behind uh, sort of this little like bead curtain veil or something, taking it all in. Yeah. It's not a, not a pleasant scene by any means. And, uh, Mm. you know, the thing is it's implied that Morgana has sort of this, uh, sorceress nature to her already. Yeah. The sight or something Mm -hmm. as they call it. She has, right. Because Mm -hmm. she, she knows that, it's not her father. She senses this, that her father is, is away and fighting. Um, and so, yeah, what does it say? Does the, is this the event that shapes her and sends her down a different path? Who knows? Um, the whole thing is, is rather disturbing, of course. And, uh, you know, Uther, his, his lust... He can't even, you know, wait to take off the armor. He's just got to go right then and there. So, um, yeah. But, you know, as you, you're saying, we can suppose that Merlin is looking at the uh, the long picture and that, you know, this is part of his strategy to save the land, but it's still hard to, to condone it. Mm-hmm. That's right. And there's this added dimension to it when you think that at this moment of conception, uh, of when Arthur was conceived, that's when the Duke of Cornwall died, and it synchronized the, the, mm-hmm. these two events: this act of a violation, and then the act of his death. You know, he falls from his horse while riding out after, um, because they laid siege to his castle, and then they abandoned the plan once right. Uther made the deal with Merlin, and so mm-hmm. he decided to pursue them. You know, pursue the men of Uther, and then he was involved in a battle while his wife was. You know being subjected to the attentions of Uther now disguised as him. So uh, the synchronization uh, is, is I'm not going to say it's a nice effect. It's an interesting idea by John Borman, but it makes it more disturbing for me because this implies that either Merlin had a hand in the death of the Duke of Cornwall or it was happenstance or there's some sinister power at work that the power that also fuels Morgana maybe the, the cancerous side to the land, you know, there's some dark mm-hmm. power that tries to to make its will known. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what, what they, they never overtly imply what's happening there, but you know, it's synchronized. So why is it synchronized? Is it just coincidence? I doubt it. 
And then um, that's where the evil is born too. So at the moment that the good is born, evil is born because it's an act of evil. And that evil takes root in Morgana because she witnessed this. Right. Yeah, this act. So I, I love that, you know, that you could come up with your own kind of um, uh, thoughts here about why this happened or how it happened in the story. You know, so I, I don't know what Burman was thinking. He just probably thought, hey, this is great. You know, I'm going to go Hitchcock one better, <laughs> you know, or something. <laughs> I don't know what his dreams of grandeur was there, but delusions of grandeur, I should say. But, you know, um, it was an interesting effect. Yeah, for sure. Like you said, you, you get the impression that, you know, Morgana already as a child, she knows at the exact moment when her father dies you know you see him fall whether it was happenstance or merlin or whatever his horse gets startled and he gets kicked off the horse and falls onto this rack of like axes and spears and is impaled and pretty much killed right away and there's a jump cut to then morgana saying you know jumping up and being like (gasps) and then saying my father's dead and you know it it grains like Mm -hmm. no 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 what's going on it was just a dream and then that's the exact moment where uther comes in you know, and he looks like you know, the Duke and, you know, Egrain's like, no, see, there's your father there. But again, during that disturbing scene, she can look right at him and see through uh, Merlin's, you know, uh, magic and see right through the, the you know, you know, disguise or whatever you want to call it that, you know, right. the image right there. So I, I really like that. That was one of the scenes that although that scene was disturbing what was going on there, those two little parts right there leading into it. I really love those quite a bit. Mm. And, you know, you, we have to remember this later on, too. Um, the revenge on Morgana's part that's going to take shape later on is mm-hmm. also uh, similar to a rape that's going to happen later on, if yes. you think about it. So so it all is all part of her revenge. Mm-hmm. And I like that, that she's the sinister force. It's, it's not just that she's, you know, wrong place at the wrong time or even the right place at the right time. She's planned everything ever since she was a child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I like that, that they, they put this antagonist in there. That's the equal of Merlin and, and even in mm-hmm. many ways is superior. If you think about how devious she is. Yeah. And then we do get, you know, nine months later, we see, you know, Igraine, you know, bears a son and Uther comes in and, you know, she doesn't seem to be quite sure what's going on yet as to who the father was. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, you know, she's a bit confused about all that. And she does, you know, eventually here figure it out. But Merlin comes busting in and he says to Uther, uh, hey, remember that time you swore you'd give me what I want? And he, you know, demands the bet, the debt be paid with uh, the child. He wants that child. And it's a wow. I I can't even just to think about that. I know it's a fantasy film and everything, but just to try to think about that in real world terms is just mind boggling. I can't even. Wow. It's crazy. No, well, this, I mean, Karen, you're also a fantasy fan. This happens in fancy, fantasy quite a bit. You know, you have these tales of of imps or goblins or elves asking mm-hmm. for human flesh and, as payment. And most often mm. they prefer children. So the Merlin is linked to the fae, you know, to the, the fairy right. folk um, in many, you know, of his, you know, uh, myths and legends of him. Mm-hmm. And so I like that, that 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 he did that. I don't think I remember that from the original tale. You know, I think in the original tale, you know, the <clears throat> Arthur was, you know, his mother had to give him up because she died from sorrow or a, or some disease. And then she he went to family members or someone, you know, the obviously the Sir Eckhart and uh, his uh, brother. Well, not his real brother, Kay. 
But, um, you know, I think uh, it was in this movie where they made Merlin sort of take the child as payment. I can't remember that from the original story at all. And that's that's Stephanie Borman there, <laughs> you know, saying, yeah. hey, how else can we disturb folks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been a long time since I, I read the tales, so I don't I don't have a, a, a good sense of it. But it does seem very um, like you're saying, Herm, like something that a an imp or some other, you know, fairy creature would do. Right. They show up mm. on the doorstep and mm-hmm. like, hey, you got to pay us for this. Right. So, yeah. It, it, yeah. And it is just a disturbing scene for him to show up and Egrain is crying and, you know, screaming and it's, uh, yeah, it's effective. Now, after that, events happen very quickly because Uther yeah. suddenly just becomes possessive of the child. I don't think he cares, but he, he probably realized that, hey, every king needs an heir. And uh, that's might, might be one of the reasons, it's not because he really cares about the child, he cares about his legacy. And then he runs out after Merlin and uh, briefly gets lost in the woods, and then he's ambushed. Mm-hmm. And um, so that that was his death knell, really, that final act that he ha- asked Merlin to allow him to do. That was the end of his life. And then after that, the country was torn asunder by you know rival forces when he was killed. But before he was killed, he what what did he do, Billy? He did this. There was this classic scene of his selfishness that that also led to <laughs> his son becoming king. <laughs> yeah, I mean. When he was ambushed, too, uh, he hacks off a guy's arm. And for yeah. practical effects, that's pretty darn good. I'm going to say that right <laughs> now. Like when I watched that just even last night, I was like, oh, God, that was horrible. And again, that was 1981 and we're in 2021. So, again, what's that? 40 years later. That's a really good scene. That just when he turns around with Excalibur and hacks this guy's arm right off. <laughs> yeah, it, it's pretty, pretty disturbing, but pretty good. Excalibur's better than a Ginsu knife. <laughs> really? Mm. I was, I was yeah. gonna say Excalibur's better than a lightsaber. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does have Luke's green sheen from Return of the Jedi there. Mm-hmm. So. Or it's it's just as effective as a phaser. You know, we're talking about Picard here. So, but yeah, yeah, uh, you know, Uther is you know very vain, and he's like, uh, if uh, I'm gonna die, nobody's gonna have Excalibur, and he takes Excalibur and you know uh, shoves it right into a, a giant stone right there on the spot because he's you know vain and then he also knows uh the duke of cornwall's men here who are trying to exact this uh, revenge on him i think that they're gonna want the stone too so he shoves it in there and then pretty much he's in his death throes and just croaks and these other guys try to grab it and uh nope not happening and that's pretty much the end of the the first act here you know like you said herm it moves really fast after this i mean you fast forward a few years and you know, we see Arthur, you know, and his brother and father, you know, and Arthur's grown up and, you know, late teens, early 20s, maybe I would think. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And local kings all around are jousting for the chance to pull the sword from the stone. So they've sort of established this little bit of a tradition or this culture around the sword mm-hmm. by this time, 15 mm-hmm. years later or 16 years later. I like that, too. The, the, the fact that you don't really you don't feel that there's a jarring moment between the transition of all of these years it's it's seamless i've i've i found yeah. at least yeah you know what was nice about that the way they did that is that uh and and borman pointed this out i don't know if i read this or it was in the documentary i i don't know i was doing so much research it's all mixed up in my head now um but that scene so when when uther was getting killed uh you know they i think they filmed that maybe in like the fall 
and you see him and it's great because it's all muddy and dark and you know he actually falls and rolls around in the mud it's kind of filthy and everything and he shoves the the sword and the stone and then when we cut to you know years later it's like springtime and it's all green and nice looking <laughs> and pleasant yeah. and there's Beautiful. like a little village that's built up around there because you know it's like everybody knows oh the sword's over here well let's you know we can have jousting and fun you know while everybody's <laughs> trying to hack each other to death trying to get <laughs> But but yeah, it's a it's a beautiful storytelling uh, uh, technique that they use to go to transition from, you know, yeah, it you know, sixteen years or whatever has passed, but you pick it up, you know, like that because of the way they mm-hmm. do that transition. I thought that was that was just excellent. And and this will happen again later when they introduce the character of Mordred, the transition between his early years yes. and then his teenage or you know young adult years. It's it's brilliantly mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, Boorman showing his unique way of filming. Like most directors have these little tricks up their sleeves, right? Now I would say Boorman's particularly adept. He does that too in, from what I can remember. Uh, the Exorcist, but of course that's done in a different kind of way. The, the time transition, it's more like horror-centric, you know, it's almost like a jump scare, you know, showing the transition of time. But here it's done elegantly and very effectively, yeah. So, Billy, after that, though, um, how does Arthur get involved here? I mean, there's, there's this, 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 um, this is not mm-hmm. planned by Merlin. I, I refuse to believe this. This is completely mm-hmm. luck. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we have, uh, you know, this joust going on, like you said about, and we uh, we need to quickly mention then, too, the night that wins the joust is uh, Leon de Grants, and that's our buddy Patrick Stewart that we <laughs> mentioned uh, earlier on. And, of course, he goes over and he cannot pull the sword from the stone. And uh, then it's going to be Arthur's brother, Kay. It's going to be his turn to joust soon. And his father says, well, give him his sword. And Arthur's like, oh, I forgot it. I left it back in the tent. As he scurries back to the tent to get it, it's been stolen. And he's like, "Uh uh-oh, like, what am I going to do here? He needs a sword. And at that moment, he turns around, and the shot widens, and there's Excalibur. And I guess he figured, hey, why not give it a try? (laughs) He goes over, and great scene. You know, this, this kid, you know, lifts it and is just like, wow, his eyes are like as big as saucers. And of course, a couple of people turn around and look and they're like, whoa, did that kid pull that out of there? And they're just like, no way. And Oh, it's a great scene because then, you know, he puts it back in and a couple of the other knights, you know, the local toughs try to get it because they think, oh, well, it's been pulled out. It'll be easier to do now. And <laughs> they can't do it. It's great. <laughs> but there's Arthur and he can do it again. And, you know, we have this rift of, you know, Leon de Grants is like, hey, he pulled it. He's the guy. He's the king, whether he's a kid or not. It, that's 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 the the way it goes. Those are those are the rules. And you have a couple other knights that are like, no way, I'm not following this kid. So you know, you see that that you know, rift right from the beginning there. I like that. Oh yeah, there's there's a lot to to love about that whole scene uh, or series of scenes uh, because the way Nigel Terry, it's just, he's such a doofus. It's like, well, I guess I'll just get Excalibur then, <laughs> you know. <laughs> He just runs over and pulls it out and and people are looking at him and then his dad comes over and he's like, did you did you take Excalibur? And he's like, uh, I did. And he's like, well, put it back. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> 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 he puts it back in and, 
and yeah, you're right. You definitely get the impression that the the other knights are like, well, now I should be able to pull it out easily, you know, and they run over and I think it's Urien's that uh, is kind of a very thuggish guy and he's, he's over mm-hmm. there yanking and yanking and trying to get it out. Um, it, it's just, I mean, the, it just seems like such genuine storytelling, right? It's the kind of mm-hmm. thing you would expect to happen. Um, everything that happens is just seems so genuine and, and, you know, like you've got the guys who are, you know, trying to get it. You've got Leon de Grant saying, well, wait, I saw this happen. So, Hey, that's the way it is. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, just a lot of fun to, to, to see how that all unwinds and you get a sense of each character, um, you know, in the it's a short sketch, but you immediately kind of understand each character by their actions here. Yeah, mm-hmm. if there's anything we learn from this movie, it's that a klutz can become a king, and a <laughs> doofus can become a knight. <laughs> if you look at Percival later on, yeah. there's really some rags to riches stories here. But um, yeah, I like the fact that it's Merlin's presence that sort of uh, causes this mini rebellion because. While Leon de Grants, he saw it happen with his own eyes, so he's supporting Arthur right from the beginning. The rest think it's Merlin manipulating events here to get his way. Mm-hmm. And they don't trust him, they don't trust his magic. They know he used to be Uther's man. So it's the very presence of Merlin that sort of says, This is trickery, you know, on you know, from the wizard. Or and so there's this brief rebellion. And then Arthur immediately well, he first he runs away, right? And he, then he has this brief moment of almost in denial where he's like i can't do it and then merlin what he massages him gives him a massage there in the bushes he's like you can (laughs) and arthur's like i can't and you know billy what you said about this guy's eyes they're permanently as big as sources right throughout the entire movie a lot of time yes they are very much yeah whether they're great yeah yeah it's a great scene yeah i love it this pep talk by merlin yeah there's a few there's a few times in the film where uh, I'm not sure how they did it by just cutting and restarting and stopping and starting with the film, but they have these neat little insertions where, you know, one second Merlin is like right next to somebody or in a, in a group. And then everybody turns and literally within two seconds, he's 50 yards away. I really like that. That, that to me really added to Merlin's, you know, mysteriousness. And that happens here too. I love it. <laughs> oh, it's great. It's great. Yeah. Merlin's such a, such a funny character you know he's got this humorous mm-hmm. side to him but then he's got this real evil streak when he starts and then he also seems a little bit insane you know because he or or this might be his half human nature he doesn't actually have the facial tics or the i think this is obviously done by uh, nicole williams uh, as you know part of merlin's character he acts strangely mm-hmm. in company mm-hmm. and uh, you can definitely see and even the way he speaks it's it's in this this weird you know, non-human fashion where you think, uh, okay, this this guy's either completely batshit loony or he there's something, you know, uh, sinister about him. Uh, but he sells it so well that you kind of find him endearing. He's definitely, like you said, he's your favorite character, Billy. He's mm-hmm. my favorite character too. I don't know about you, Karen. There's su- such a lot of great characters to choose from, but Merlin steals the show for me. Oh yeah. Well, he's he's a, a very distinctive character for all the reasons that you just put forth. You know, um, I yeah. think he, you know he's so memorable because yeah, he chose to play Nicole Williamson chose to play the character not as 
a human, I think. I think he de- definitely decided I'm, I'm going to play him as someone who thinks differently, who has different knowledge, different understanding. And that's what we got. And, you know, because of that, we have this character that we're still talking about, you know, what is it, 40 years later? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's I, I think it for me, it's probably a tie between him and Arthur. I really enjoy seeing Arthur's journey. Um, you yeah, know, through the movie, definitely. but yeah, I really, I, I, you know, Merlin is just so much fun to watch. Yeah, even this, uh, oh, yeah, that's true. It's not really, you can't really say it's just Arthur's story because obviously Borman loved the character of Merlin. That's the first one he chose mm-hmm. to write the screenplay about, after all. But you know, there's many different characters here that have their own stories and arcs and vignettes almost, like Lancelot when he comes mm-hmm. uh, in, you know. Uh, into the four and also then Percival and then right um you know so I love the fact that he he focuses on everybody from the legends or from 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 the original tale but um then this brief period after he becomes king where he finally accepts it that is a fantastic scene too because he immediately proves himself even though he's not a knight and that is a striking scene too mm-hmm. how does that happen how does he I mean speak on this guys this is a fantastic scene where he Sort of, you know, they attack a castle and he defends Leon de Grants and then something happens to turn the other side to the side of their new king. Yeah, what a great scene. You know, you have Merlin. He kind of says to, you know, Arthur about, you know, you are the king and you can do this, you know, kind of gives him a bit of a pep talk and says, you know, hey, you know, Arthur figures out, oh, wait a minute. The only person that was kind of on my side was Leon de Grants and his castle's under attack, you know, Merlin says to him. So he goes back to the village and gets his, you know, brother and father and all the people that are going to be loyal to him. And they head over to his castle and you get this, you know, really cool battle scene, you know, cause there's, it, it almost seems like Leon de Grants is there by himself or maybe with like five <laughs> friends. And there's like literally a hundred guys besieging his little castle. And, you know, I just did thought too, I never saw this in a movie before. Like usually when you see, you know, movies with knights and this and that, there's like kind of a code of honor where, you know, it's, you know, uh, I, I won't stab you in the back or, you know, we'll face off and we'll fight. But one of the, you know, people that are besieging the castle even goes after Guinevere. And I was like, holy mm-hmm. crap, look at this maniac. I couldn't believe it. But Guinevere, she seems uh, quite taken with uh, the bravery of uh, Arthur here. I really like that scene. Yeah, it's it's a real free for all. That's the thing that, that initially struck me about this, because, you know, you always heard about you know, the knights and their their code and nobility. And these guys are just wailing on each other and they don't care who gets in the way. They'll go after, you know, the guy's daughter, the kids, whatever. It doesn't yeah. matter. They'll kill your dog. It doesn't matter, you know. And, uh, yeah, the, the siege, it's really great. You start to see, you know, Arthur turn it around and he's he realizes, oh, yeah, I've got to help this guy out because he's – you know, he's supporting me and uh, he goes in there. He doesn't have any armor on, you know, he uh, puts himself in harm's way. Uh, I love when he kind of jumps from the wall <laughs> into the little, yeah. the little stream. And it, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's great action. And, and uh, you know, you, you get to see his, his uh, fledgling nobility, but also his mm. humility too, right? Because, mm-hmm. and, and you could almost say, well, is he naive? Because he's putting himself at risk 
uh, saying, well, you know, I'm not a knight, so you need to knight me. The guy could just lop his head off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's that inner spirit that he has, the, the fact that he is the true king, the fact that he is tied to the land, you know, that wins mm-hmm. out. And, and even somebody like Urians, who is maybe not the most noble guy, uh, still feels that and is won over by it. Yeah. No, it's sort of, if you think about it, it redefines the rules of badassery because not only does he own that battle, he forces his enemy to knight him in the midst of the battle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you said, after he jumps off of the side of the castle onto Urian's, you know, he kind of has the sword to his throat like, hey, kind of say, no, listen, I'm the boss here. And Urian's is like, get out of here. You're just a kid. You're just a squire. I won't follow you. You're no king. Mm-hmm. You're, not, you're, you're, you're not even a knight. And he's like, you're right, I'm not. And then he hands Excalibur to Urians, and Urians is like, whoa. And he gets down on his knees and says, you know, then he wants him to knight him. And like you said, at that moment, he could just cut his head off and be like, you know, I'm the boss now. But yep. that, that's when he realizes, like, wow, this guy, not only did he pull the sword from the stone, but, you know, he has something to be about him that no one else has or no one else has shown at this point. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And he just made that guy his manslave for life because he goes to his <laughs> knees and starts worshiping, you know. And, and this movie very much portrays Arthur as the ultimate authority. There's no greater authority than the king, even during that grail scene, which we'll talk about later, where, mm-hmm. you know, Percival has this vision of a god. It's Arthur, you know. So this is where he's established his, his credit, you know. And um, mm-hmm. I love the fact that Merlin didn't even foresee this. He was surprised when Arthur handed over the sword in the thick of battle to right. Urians. And then, you know, Merlin was like, what? What? All my plans are now hanging by a thread. <laughs> you know, he's really stressed out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. Love oh, that. but I love the next scene too, when you kind of see, hey, let's have a big party now because we're all buddies again. Um, and <laughs> we see, uh, you know, Arthur's falling for Guinevere and she's kind of being a bit, you know, teasing him a bit like, yeah, I like you, but I still want to have a good time. So she's jumping around and partying with everybody. And, Arthur is talking to Merlin and he's like, I love her, Merlin. And Merlin's like, oh, here we go again. And he goes, <laughs> can you make her love me? And he's like, oh, no, I'm not going through that crap again. <laughs> I love that scene. <laughs> I love it. Merlin's like, get out of here with this love crap. <laughs> oh, my God. This movie, just just talking about it just makes me want to watch it again. I just, I've, I've, you know, it just reaffirms my love for it, you know. But, um, you know, then, you know, we get to the more mythological aspects of it now. We haven't seen, you know, any Knights of the Round Table yet. We haven't seen Camelot. We haven't seen any of that. So mm-hmm. first order of business, reunification. Arthur mm-hmm. does that. They're fighting wars, but they triumph because they have Arthur, they have Excalibur. And then, you know, the story starts flowing. This is where the mythic element takes root. They build Camelot and, uh, you know, they establish this order of knights and this is, you know, when I was a kid, when I saw this part of the movie, I, I was thinking, I can't remember if I was thinking this, but with subsequent rewatchings, I remember this, this scene was very uplifting for me because I was like thinking at the time, yeah, we went through all this blood and guts and all this horror. And finally, we got to the shining, you know, beautiful round table nights that I always had in my mind before I saw all this blood and rape and gore. <laughs> so it was <laughs> worth it. And then. No, they break that down and go right back to the blood and rape and gore before finally getting back to the end and, you know, uh, you know, everything gets reborn. So 
this movie's not done with you. It's it's still sort mm. of like traumatizing you even after giving you this brief, uplifting period of hope and 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 you know of peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so don't for, well, it's a right. Time, yeah, we see some time pass though, and then you know our buddy Lancelot shows up, and that's a that's an interesting scene too because you know you figure Lancelot he kind of beats the crap out of every knight and Arthur's like, I'll go take him on. And they're like, no, you're the king. And he's like, eh, listen, I'm going to go take him on. You know, don't tell me what to do. Kind of Arthur's a little bit arrogant here, you know, and he tries to go after Lancelot because, you know, Arthur thinks I've got Merlin on my side. I've got Excalibur on my side. I can't lose. And it turns out Lancelot is, you know, a better warrior than him. And it takes him calling on, you know, some power and magics from Excalibur to defeat Lancelot. But in the process, he breaks the sword and I love that scene, too, because to me, that's the scene where, you know, Arthur really gets it. You know, we have Merlin there as well in the background. But how, what do you guys think of that scene? Oh, yeah, that's that's one of my favorites, um, because it, it really shows how Arthur is different than Uther. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, he encounters this this warrior who is just better than him. He's better than all of Arthur's uh, uh, knights. And. He, you can see Arthur has a little bit of, or maybe more than a little bit of his father in him. You know, he he starts getting angry. He starts letting his passions take over while he's fighting Lancelot, mm-hmm. and he he does abuse his power. He he has Excalibur, and he can use the power, which, as Herm said before, is really supposed to be about uniting the land, about you know. Uh, bringing peace and and bringing people together, he abuses it so that he can just win this one fight, right? It, it's mm-hmm. it's it's arrogance and it's um, you know a, a deep uh, abuse of that that power that he's been granted, and and it breaks mm-hmm. the sword, and he is so stunned and so ashamed of of what he's done, you know that he he makes this wonderful speech about you know oh you know what have i done and i've you know i've abused this power and i've this fine warrior and blah 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 that by doing that by showing the humility and showing his his wisdom and understanding what he's done you know the lady of the lake reappears and it's just such a beautiful scene you know with mm-hmm. the, the sword being restored merlin you know, standing there in disbelief because we look to Merlin to understand things, right? And even Merlin yeah. is stunned by what's happening, that Arthur gets a second chance, you know? Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, why, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, that's why that's such an uplifting scene. It, it's, you know, Arthur's remorse, the fact mm-hmm. that he has a conscience and that he realizes he's flawed. And, you know, Lancelot entering the story is the humility that Arthur needed to not become his father, to not right. become a tyrant king. He mm-hmm. needed to know that there's always someone who's your superior. And you should you should accept that. You should acknowledge that. And and then you should use that to to deal with future events in the world and maybe even strengthen yourself by adding that person to your ranks. And that's what he did with Lancelot. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. so he he saw that in order to heal, you sort of have to you need a you need a scar, you know, and that's what happened with him when he realized that. Yeah. And like you say, Karen, it's very powerful because it shows you that there are all, there are second chances. Everybody deserves a second chance. Well, maybe not everybody. 
<laughs> but um, <laughs> I've got a few names on my blacklist here where I'm like, you're not getting a second chance. My death note. I should say my death note. But, um, you know, um, I think this that's a very powerful scene. That's also why it's one of my favorites. And and just the way mm-hmm. they set up the scene, Lancelot on the opposite side of this, this um, you know, river and this bridge between them and all Arthur's knights showing up saying, he's a hard man, my king. He's a hard man. <laughs> All of them beaten and bruised and battered. Lancelot, no, not him. Still polished and shining as if nothing had happened. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, man. that's In many ways, that's the start of the round table because uh, then yeah. sort of the, the level of, of uh, skill or superiority you needed to be a, a knight sort of Lancelot up the ante there, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's probably mm-hmm. why we didn't see Leon de Grace. Poor Leon, our favorite, as part of the Knights of the Round Table, because <laughs> he was one of those guys schooled by Lancelot. <laughs> I feel bad for him, but yeah. So great mm-hmm. scene. And and after that, we've got the construction of, of, of this dream of Arthur, uh, yeah. which is Camelot. Yeah, it's beautiful, wow. really. And and what a what a scene. I mean, you've got these this Irish countryside these beautiful scenes of mm. nature you've got this shining city also um if i'm not mistaken it's got that green shine this mm-hmm. green sheen to it of, of excalibur emanating from it in the distance there beautiful mm-hmm. it's fantastic cinematography mm. yeah you're not kidding it's just gorgeous yeah like you said he you know builds camelot and we get the round table and a meeting with the knights and all that stuff too but we also uh see Lancelot and uh, Guinevere start to uh, make eyeballs at each other. And here we're thinking, oh, here we go again. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? It's just, and then we meet, you know, Morgana, who's uh, grown up now, too. And you can tell right away she's a bit of a schemer. <laughs> right. So the, the seeds are planted for disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No sooner do you have this beautiful piece and this beautiful castle and all this. And it's like you said, yeah, there's a seed planted there already for this is not going to last. You know, that's obviously a running theme through the movie. Yeah, that's one of, one of the few criticisms I have to the movie. Now, it doesn't really detract from the story or the plot or the overall enjoyment. Is that you never show, they never show Arthur's relationship with his half-sister. They never show that they no. even acknowledge each other or that they have a relationship. Or, But he obviously accepted her into Camelot. He accepted her into his court. and. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, so, but, but there's no evidence uh, other than later there, if you want to call it relations, but um, that happens, which is very disturbing. You know, it's like he, he doesn't even at the table, he doesn't even acknowledge her. You know, she, she speaks in his presence, you know, manipulating events and uh, Merlin has a, a sense of what she's doing and that she might be evil. So he sort of turns her to, tries to turn him to the, turn her to the good by making her his apprentice. Um, but I think even Merlin, he thought that his job was done. So, you know, he he sort of lowered his guard. He he became a slacker there a little bit. And he thought that, that <laughs> you know, this is now what he was working towards. This good king with unified the land and prosperous times ahead. Uh-uh. It pretty soon becomes apparent that there's a, what do you call it, a a serpent in Eden, <laughs> and that mm-hmm. serpent is a lady. Oh, that's bad to say. Why do they always have to make the ladies the evil ones? But <laughs> now you think about it. But you know, in this case, wow, she. This probably comes from Mallory's time, where you know, like ladies who were independent and free thinking were seen mm-hmm. as evil could, just could because be. they challenged yeah. male masculinity. So, 
Uh, but but she definitely owns this role. Helen Mirren. Oh. Whoa, as an evil character, I think she was born to play these kind of roles. Um, <laughs> what do you guys think about this whole? This is now the second act. We're firmly into the second act, aren't aren't we? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's funny how Morgana, you know, she picks up on the uh, the uh, eyeballs between Guinevere. You know, and Lancelot pretty quick, you know, and then she uses yeah. her magics and her, you know, maybe even her looks because, you know, we have uh, Gawain there, our buddy Liam Neeson, ah. who, uh, you know, kind of falls under her grasp being uh, drunk, it seems, too, as well as not helping him. And, you know, they have a, a meeting at the round table and uh, he calls out Guinevere and says she's the reason Lancelot, you know, keeps kind of blowing off the round table because there's something going on there. That's a wild scene, too. And I do feel for Guinevere's character there. You know, you, yeah, you know, Arthur kind of says like, hey, you know, I can't stick up for you because I have to be the king before I'm your husband. But that's a tough situation to be in there. So I kind of feel for Guinevere's character a bit there. Mm. Yeah, it, it's um, it's it's kind of funny because obviously they're they're not. They're not actually having an affair. He's he's keeping away. So they don't have an affair. Yeah. Um, you know, they they have feelings for each other. It doesn't seem like they're even really confessed. Um, but uh, that's enough to kind of set off this little powder keg. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Morgana is manipulative. Well, Merlin is manipulative. You know, they're mm-hmm. both running schemes, basically. Although Merlin has kind of now his scheme has come to fruition. So he seems, as, as Herm says, he's slacking <laughs> and so she's yeah she's free to run her schemes now uh although it's not always clear to me like to what end she's working necessarily i guess she wants to gain power but i don't know if she has some long-term like vision uh necessarily other than just to bring ruin to to arthur mm-hmm. um but yeah, uh yeah. Yeah, Guinevere definitely is in a, a rock and a hard place. I mean, she clearly does have feelings for Lancelot, but she I think she does have feelings for Arthur too, but because he's king, you know, he's always torn in other directions and can probably never really be the husband that she wants, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, I think um, um, I wanted to ask you guys, what were your thoughts on the fact that when... Uh, you know, after Arthur's victory and once he was fully declared king um, and he was knighted and so forth, they had a party at uh, Leander Grace's uh, castle and then, you know, Guinevere was dancing. And then Merlin sort of suspected that this was not, this mm-hmm. was not voting well, that Arthur was already planning to marry, um, you know, or he was setting his sights on Guinevere. They weren't getting married then, but, you know, he was already... Mm-hmm. Uh, had that idea implanted in his head that this would be his queen and Merlin was not having it. He, it's almost as if he foresaw what would happen. And yeah. uh, now, you know, we find him sleeping. He's nodding off while matters of imp- great import are being discussed. <laughs> so I think he's sort of like deciding, you know, these are lesser evils. You know, the big evil has been vanquished, you know. So, um, yeah. And then uh, I find that, you know, Guinevere is the sort of, I mean, you can't really blame this on completely on Morgana. This is sort of like what Karen says. She's not she doesn't really have a long term plan. Maybe later she does, you know, once Mm -hmm. her son is conceived. But right here, she's playing it by ear because 
um, the love. I I, th I don't think it's lust. I really think what you know they had. I mean, that very first meeting between Guinevere and Lancelot that was a very powerful scene, where mm -hmm. you know it's like this this oh crap moment where where both of them know oh my goodness you know um, this could be lead to the fall of a kingdom right mm -hmm. and um, then I think Morgana senses that and then she runs with it and uses that yeah. to her advantage mm -hmm. so. She's very mm -hmm. much, you know, an opportunist at this point in time. And then, of course, um, uh, the challenge is accepted. But Lancelot, he seems to be very in touch with nature. You know, that's why I'm thinking he sometimes smokes a bowl or something when he's in the <laughs> forest, because this dude likes to get naked. I mean, he's a nudist. <laughs> he sleeps in the nude. Any chance he gets, he doffs his armor. And then he stabs himself in a dream. What did you guys mm -hmm. think about that scene? That was just before the challenge that he had to defend the queen's honor as incited yeah. by Quain. I had forgotten to mention, too, on one of his nature uh, trips that he meets Percival. <laughs> <laughs> he meets Percival out there, too. He must be another uh, another one that's in the nature because he's just out there creeping around, killing poor little rabbits for dinner. But he, uh, you know, he, <laughs> by he tackling wants to, them. <laughs> yeah, he wants to be a knight, too. And Lancelot's like, OK, buddy, how about you be my squire first? And, you know, like we said, then there's that scene with uh Gawain when he calls them out and then Arthur decrees you know hey in two days there's going to be a, a fight between Lancelot and Gawain and that's whoever the winner is will settle this which is absolutely absurd just because somebody wins a fight doesn't mean they were right but <laughs> in, in any event um, the day of the fight you know Lancelot's nowhere to be found at first and there's nobody to defend Guinevere's honor so you know Arthur's just about ready to say well I guess we're gonna have to do something about this and you know you gotta like Percival man he's just a, a nobody basically and he's like i'll fight for her and then everybody's like he can't he's just a squire and then he hops up there and you know uh arthur knights him right there on the spot and just as if they're about to fight then lancelot shows up but you know like you said herm he had uh fallen on his own sword in a you know mushroom or weed induced <laughs> fight with his his own, his own armor <laughs> and then uh so he's already wounded but he's gonna fight uh gawain and that's a pretty good scene i like that fight yeah, I suppose he was battling himself, battling his own mm -hmm. desires. Mm. His own but demons. That, yeah, that was another one of those images. There's so many from this movie that really impacted me, uh, you know, seeing it as a kid. And then and still with that sword stuck in his side, I, you know, he's laying there naked, the sword stuck in his side. And it's just like, John Borman, why are you doing this to me? Um <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, and then, you know, he shows up and he's got a fight and he's still bleeding from his own self-impalement. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it uh, and, and then the fight again, you know, they're hammering away at each other pretty, pretty Brutally, uh, yeah. rough yeah. and brutal, yeah. brutal fight, you know. I mean, he, and he basically wins but then collapses right after uh, Gawain yields. So it's not like the most clear victory uh, that you get. That's right. It seemed as if he was going to kill Gawain there, if not for his wound that, that sort of forced him to mm -hmm. collapse because he was getting uh, ready to just, uh, you know, gut old poor Gawain there at the very end. And uh, <laughs> the, the, the ironic thing is Gawain was right all along because what did that fight for? <laughs> Nothing because... Right after that, they do the dirty deed. Right after he defended her honor. <laughs> yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Oh man, so you know, okay, I know that's not the right way to do it. Fight for you know, or accusing queen, and then, well, technically, what would have happened if Gawain won is the queen would have been sentenced to death. I mean, that's shown in the movie First Night, which is the stakes. You know, um, that if the queen is accused by a knight and she's found to be guilty, then she is a traitor to the king, to the crown, essentially. Mm-hmm. So even the king's love cannot save her because the law takes precedence, right? So it, it would have been a, a bit of a sad affair if Gawain did win, but we knew he wouldn't because it's Lancelot, you know? So yeah. even wounded, he he manages to best Gawain, but it's good that he was wounded because think about it, he's unbeatable. It wouldn't have been much of a fight. I don't even know why Gawain even went that route, you know? Yeah, he was he, drunk. Yeah, he was yeah. drunk. I probably regretted it right? because I mean, this is Lancelot. Oh, hey, I'm lucky he's wounded <laughs> when he shows up. Hmm. And that's shown to be very disturbing as well. I mean, that scene, I, I still don't know how they did it with Lancelot impaling himself like that, but it looks real to me. That yeah. it did. Yeah. And um, um, it gave him an appendix scar for certain after Merlin healed him later on. But what I like about it is the fact that when he shows up for battle, the blood is seeping through the links in his armor. Mm-hmm. And that is something you don't normally, like you say, Karen, and, and many times before, you don't associate that with knights and with armor. These folks are supposed to be, well, their armor at least, impregnable. No, this is reality here. with mm-hmm. it Merged with fantasy, of course, but yeah, he's severely injured, and we'll see that on the battlefield again. Armor is just there to protect you against glancing blows. It's when once once someone really starts wailing on you, you're gonna suffer mm-hmm. horribly before you die. And um, Lancelot is shown to be mortal here. The only person who could defeat him was Lancelot. <laughs> he, he he himself. Right. And um and so then Merlin, you know, at against his better judgment, heals him, uses his magic arts to to bring him back to the land of the living, sort of. Mm-hmm. At the behest of Guinevere, who's right there, cradling his hand, mm-hmm. you know, staring <laughs> into his eyes. Arthur's there. He's completely an idiot. I mean, this he's is Doofus, teenage <laughs> Arthur again. Yeah, he doesn't, hey, he doesn't see what, yeah, what a drunken sot could see. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, yeah. he... In his own way, I mean, he has sort of a bromance with Lancelot, too. Yes. He, yes. he loves yeah. Lancelot, so he can't... <laughs> He can't imagine that his best bud is in love with his wife. You know, he's he can't think the worst of them. So I'll, I'll give him that. Mm, that's mm. true. That that's believable. You know, that's that's mm-hmm. why it works. Um, mm. Yeah. No, I I can accept that. You know, he he. It's just a matter of belief. Like he's he he has faith in people. He sees the best in people. That's a weakness. But I think in this movie, though, ultimately, it's not a weakness. Um, but you know, some. Sometimes in stories that's always betrayed as, you know, if you have too much faith in people, you always see the good in people, that your enemies can turn that against you. Mm-hmm. It, it sort of almost happened here, but then it didn't, which is very uplifting to me. I, I find that uh, an optimistic sort of viewpoint that you you should see the good in people. That's what what that's Arthur's strength rather than a weakness, really, at the end of the day. And that's mm-hmm. why this movie has such a fantastic ending. But um, so then we get to, you know, this affair because Guinevere can't stand it anymore. She got, she manipulated Merlin into healing her man. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about Arthur here. And as soon as he retreats to nature for his 
a little bit Na- of a, a nude walk. <laughs> Naked romps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she's right there and she's saying, accept me into your nudist community of one. Let's make this a two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're at an Adam and Eve moment here. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, that's that's all right. That's the Adam and Eve moment. And God finds them in the Garden of Eden, doesn't he? God mm-hmm. being Arthur. What does he do? He leaves. Uh, oh, he, poor I guess, Arthur. Suspected. Yeah, poor Arthur, man. Damn. Totally mm. heartbroken. Yeah. His, the the two people he loves the most, and uh, he yeah. finds them together in the moss. I gotta say, <laughs> I you know, there's a lot of places that might be outside that you might want to have sex in. A pile of moss is not one of them. I boy. <laughs> Oh man, yeah, that's not know. the oh, well, that's not the ideal spot for sure. Well, don't wow. tell that to Abby Cable. I mean, oh, she's oh well, yeah. <laughs> she's she's special. Let's just put it that way. That's right. No, no, I love the fact that you know. Oh, that's a great bit, Karen. Yeah, I didn't think about that. That is pretty gross, slimy, gross. You know, sliding Oof. around over there. But um, mm. you know, then Arthur arrives and he finds them sleeping, and he could have decapitated them both but that's not who he is he, he mm. can do it to the two people he loves most in the world so he just leaves Excalibur as his uh you know the, the evidence that he was there but also he then gave up hope and gave up his stewardship of the land I think because mm. symbolized by by Excalibur really I mean this movie's called Excalibur it's all about this damn sword and um you know swords are phallic but not for Arthur for him, it's sort of almost like it, it's a loss of your your masculinity in, in certain cases. Because even with Excalibur, he couldn't keep that which he desired most in the world, which at that point in time was Guinevere. Later, it mm-hmm. became, you know, more than Guinevere. It became like he had to to redress his the, the, the wrongs that he had done to the land. But this time around, it's definitely his love for Guinevere is the, the, the his main concern. And that's what causes him to lose his faith in himself and in Excalibur. And he, he's not worthy of a sword anymore in his own mind. So he just lets it go. And then the land falls into ruin because mm. first off, we've, we've got Morgana now. This is now Morgana's chapter. Oh, yeah. She, she has identified Merlin's, you know, uh, what, what would you call it? His lackluster uh, nature. And she then lures him into teaching her the gift uh, of the rune. What do you call it? The the spell of making. The mm-hmm. rune of making? I don't know charm, exactly. The charm you know. of making. Oh, sorry. The yeah. charm. Yes, yes, the charm of making. And then she lures him into the lair of the dragon, which is not, not she lures him. She that he, he has access to the lair of the dragon, which could be described as the heart of the world, the heart of nature, the heart of the earth, mm-hmm. which is his power source. And then uh, right after he teaches her the charm of making, she uses it against him and traps mm-hmm. him. Yeah. yeah. Now, in the original story, this was the character of Nimue. Nimue did this to him, his rival, his great, you know, um, uh, you know, his nemesis. But here yeah. they, they streamline it. They, I mean, it would have been weird if they, they put another character in here. And uh, he's trapped there seemingly forever. He'll never leave. He's become one with with the ancient power he worshipped and drew his strength from. And um, he's trapped in this green crystal. And now, again, you've got this color scheme, right? The green, mm. you know, the earth, nature, mm. Excalibur, Camelot reflecting it. And everything then falls apart because now Morgana's got free reign. Plus, she's got Merlin's ultimate spell, you know, at her beck and call. 
So this is where things really, and this is why I think the pacing of the movie is great because you you never at one, many folks online say it's too long. What? I mean, yeah, it's yeah. it's a long movie, but it doesn't feel too long because you're constantly being, you know, confronted with fantastic scenes that, you know, I don't think is predictable if you see this movie for the first time, unless yeah. you've, you're a, a student of the source material uh, to the point of fanaticism, I think this movie offers up so many great scenes, one after another after another. And this is where things really escalate. So, yeah, man, Billy, what do you think about this final scene that's sort of like the ruin of Camelot, really? Uh, not the final scene, I should say, this final arc. Yeah, this is a really good one. You know, it, Morgana, like we said, she kind of basically in one moment, in one fell swoop, really... Uh, you know, manages to trap Merlin and she seems to be at, you know, the height of her magic powers that she, you know, some inherent, some she learned from Merlin as well. And then uh, sort of like in that first uh, act, you know, where Merlin helped uh, Uther, you know, appear as someone else, she disguises herself as Guinevere and seduces Arthur to, uh, you know, get pregnant by him and basically create the person that she thinks is going to uh, be his downfall. That's a really creepy scene too. That's another one where it's like, Borman, what were you thinking? You nut. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is all from the source material. Borman was probably just loving it, seeing mm -hmm. you know, Thomas Mallory as this kindred spirit, like, <laughs> you know, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm going to channel, channel some Mallory's, uh, you know, Jeez. sickness, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> this is not just Mallory. Of, of course there are many legends and, you know, way back when, sixth century fifth century and and even later on in the middle the late middle ages uh incest was not that uncommon it was actually you know practiced True. you know um very regularly so but but the fact that she turns this against arthur to mm. to create a sort of a demon you know uh in mordred this this is very sinister and this is her revenge coming to to full yeah. fruition here karen what do you think about this scene it's almost it's not as powerful as the the first rape scene we have, but it's definitely shown to be almost, you know, worse, actually, if you think about the consequences. Yeah, I mean, there's some repetition in the story in the sense that, you know, we had a violation that brought about Arthur's birth, and now, you know, another violation that brings about yeah. Mordred's birth. And, and, you know, I feel to a large extent that Morgana was enabled or empowered because Arthur gave up Excalibur, you know, yeah, Arthur, yeah. Arthur lost his faith and, and let go of Excalibur. So his, his link to the land was severed yeah. and, uh, yeah. you know, that allowed her to grow in power. And, uh, you know, very quickly, it's just like the, the dominoes tumble, you know, so after she mm. accuses or gets Gawain to accuse Guinevere, then they actually do, uh, you know, uh, have this uh, illicit affair. And then, you know, Arthur is is basically uh, destroyed. Um, you know, this, uh, you know, is going to lead to the uh, destruction, essentially, of the round table. And she's able to, you know, uh, get rid of Merlin so that he no longer will have Merlin as a, a resource or an influence and yeah it's it's um amazing how you know one small act can lead to 
uh, a complete disaster basically yeah. for, for the land. And, and she does, and it's a subtle thing, a subtle way that she, she, you know, instills herself and, and rises up through, uh, through just, you know, sort of acting on the emotions and the, the pettiness um, of people around her. Mm, mm, definitely. Yeah. It's a domino effect that she creates this chain reaction. Um, and I think some of it is luck too, but some of it's definitely mm-hmm. her, you know, her intelligence, her deviousness. But I think she was just, um, like you say, um, maybe her plan only started to take shape once she saw that there were these weak links, you know, she didn't right. create the weak links, but she saw them, you know, she identified them. And then, of course, exploited she got rid of them, all the... Yeah. yeah, exploited them. Yeah, that's the mm-hmm. right word. And then she got rid of all the obstacles in her path. Merlin, Excalibur, indirectly, but caused by her too. And then, of course, um, she, you know, initiated her own god that she wanted to create. In her own words, she said she wants to create a god worthy of of power, the power that she has. And, and then she mocks Merlin with it. She shows up in the lair of the dragon... Uh, while Merlin's imprisoned and then she mocks him and you know the, he was her I don't think her ultimate enemy but she saw him as the cause of what happened when she was a kid I mean she blames Merlin right. more than she does because after all um, you know Uther's dead and um, she uses Arthur as you know her punching bag but she is doing that to make Merlin you know feel what she felt when she was a kid so that's why she kept, keeps going mm. back there and but then eventually she forgets about him once she's all wrapped up in her own power and then you know uh arthur sort of tries to when once he sees his kingdom collapsing right he he tries to to find a way uh, with uh, because excalibur is lost at this point in time he doesn't know guinevere took it and um uh, he probably won't accept it again and if he can he find he tries to find another way to heal the land and uh, that is through this the grail now mm-hmm. normally the grail is tied to the you know the jesus christ um, story but here though it's presented as another magical object like excalibur that has always been in the world or not always i mean not, they don't say that like they say excalibur has been there since the dawn of time but the grail sort of seems to be similar to excalibur what do you guys think about the sudden transition to the the grail uh, the siege perilous sort of kind of storyline. You know, in some ways it was a little sudden. Um, yeah. I think because I had some knowledge of the Holy Grail, and, and unfortunately probably a lot of it came from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, I understood the, the concept behind it. Um, I, I could see if you if you didn't have much knowledge, you might be going like, "What the heck are they talking about?" Because um, it isn't really explained. Um, so yeah, that that was probably the most abrupt shift in the film. Uh, you know, because yeah, otherwise you would just be thinking, "Well, okay, there's something they have to go and get. I don't know really what it is." Uh, but for me, yeah, it wasn't. It was understandable. I knew what they were going after. But you're right; it's not really explained in the sense there's no exposition about you know we have to get the cup that our our lord christ drank from blah 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 it's just said oh we need the grail it'll restore the land etc that's right that's right yeah 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 
Now, while this is going on, while Arthur's trying to heal the land, the birth of Mordred happens. And this is a very graphic scene to me as well. Karen, I don't Mm -hmm. know if you or Billy might have had this embedded in your minds as well, but the version that I saw as a kid, I know there were some, you know, especially the VHS tapes and so forth that we rented that were different sometimes. But the version that I saw as a kid was the this graphic birth scene where she essentially, Morgana gives, well, she initiates the birth all by herself. You know, she doesn't need a midwife. There are midwives around, but they appear to be, you know, uh, clones of her. <laughs> or and, and she, like, pulls the baby out. This was very disturbing. Also showing you know, sort of this this inhuman aspect to this baby. It's the Antichrist, essentially. Mm-hmm. So what did you guys think about that scene? It's it's disturbing. Again, Borman. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. Uh, it, it has almost this satanic <laughs> kind of thing yeah. to it, you know. Yeah, um, yeah not, not the wholesome, like, oh, yes, we're having a baby. Isn't it wonderful? It's, yeah, it feels much more like some sort of dark right that's being yeah. perpetuated and uh, whatever's being birthed is, is not something wholesome, but yeah, something dark and evil. That's mm. right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's a creepy scene. You know, these robed figures around and stuff like that. That's you, you two are right on the money with <laughs> your assessment of that scene. But this is one of the first times too in the film, I feel like time passes. And I think if I'm not mistaken, there was a line somewhere and somebody says something about 10 years passing or something like that. And I thought, oh, okay. Cause you know, earlier in the film, a couple of times we have, you know, a bit of a, a time jump and they don't really say exactly how many years it's been, but it might be Sir Percival that says something about it. it's been 10 years or something like that when they're searching for the grail. And, you know, obviously, oh, he, yeah. yeah, I think that might be the only one, which I found interesting, but I thought, you know, that was a really wild scene, too, because, like I said, things really motor fast towards the end of the movie here. And mm-hmm. we see that, you know, we follow, you know, from Percival's perspective and we end up seeing that a lot of the other knights, you know, have died searching for this grail. And it seems as if, you know, Morgana and Mordred are behind uh, their deaths. Yeah, there, I, I would say that the passage of time here is a, a little difficult to understand. I mean, we do see that, um, you know, when Mordred is born and then there is that nice uh, cut that I I know her mentioned where we have the young Mordred and then there's uh, a similar scene where it kind of phases into the older Mordred. So, you know, we get the passage of time there. But um, how long the Grail Knights were searching, I think you're right, Billy, there was some some comment probably by Percival about that. So we know somewhere around 10, 20 years has passed because Mordred looks to be a young adult uh, mm-hmm. by the time we get into the the end of the film. Yeah. Um, unless unless uh, Morgana used some sort of <laughs> magic to uh, oh, age him oh. quickly. But uh, well, yeah, well, if you think about it, Percival was the only knight who overcame the first obstacle, which was the trap of the the tree of death set by mm. Morgana yeah. and by a young uh, Mordred. So this was probably 10 years after. He's probably 10. And then it's a great escape scene. Obviously, he was also lucky there. I'm not saying he was aided by a higher power. I'd like to believe not. But his spurs right set him free because he was rocking after being hung from this tree 
where the rest of his buddies, the Knights of the Round Table, were decaying. And then there's this horrible eyeball scene where this crow shows up and rips out this eyeball. (laughs) God damn, Borman. You know, and I hate (laughs) eyeball horror. I just absolutely loathe that. Now, the only thing that made that a little bit better for me was the fact that that eyeball is so clearly fake. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like if you watch Jello movies, the Italian Jello movies, they... Their eyeballs are ridiculously realistic looking. But, you know, the fact that this eyeball has already been, what, um, drying up in the sun or or being sub- submitted to the elements for probably weeks or something. That Who makes knows how long, look, yeah. Yeah, look unreal is fine with me, you know. But it just <laughs> easily rolls out of the socket. You know, so um, no optic nerve or anything else to freak me out there. So I could, <laughs> I could accept that. But then, then, you know, Percival, you know, he, his spurs sort of... Um, you know, set him free by rocking back and forth in the wind, I, I guess it is, or just his own mm-hmm. momentum that yeah. drops. And then he's the only knight to pass that first hurdle. And after that, another 10 years passes, like you guys say, roughly. And during those 10 years, he undergoes even more hardship because he travels to the four corners of the earth, still can't find the grail. And uh, even the, the people of the land turn against him. I mean, he's mm. assaulted by a mob. He's half drowned. And then in a vision, I think he persevered. That's how he was worthy enough to to claim the grail. It's 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 the magic of the grail, kind of like the magic of Excalibur. Those who are worthy are presented with the uh, opportunity the to wield it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in this vision, I, I, this is also a fantastic scene. I mean, this is sort of like something you would see out of Alejandro Jodorowsky stuff, you know, where it's like, you know, the holy mountain or something where, you know, there's this dream sequence, drug-induced dream sequence, <laughs> fueled <laughs> by the director's passion for, you know, illicit substances most often. But I'm not saying Berman was high when he did this, but there's definitely some <laughs> quality of that well, in there, I think. Some psychedelic effect. Yeah, it's like a dream <laughs> sequence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then after that, he finds the grail. And then we've got the good guys coming back strongly because what does he do? Well, we, we we you didn't mention too when uh, Percival was being attacked at one point by a bunch of the uh, locals. Oh, yeah. part of the mob was uh, our buddy Lancelot, who looks like mm-hmm. you know he's been uh, oh, yes. <laughs> he's been through the ringer. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah, that's a very disturbing bit. I think um, you know I I I like to think not because I don't like to see Lancelot back until the very end. I think that's that's a little bit weak sauce putting him in there, but it's sort of shows the betrayal of you know not just the the code of the knights but also the fact that they've become they went from revered figures to to the cause of the suffering and sorrow of the land and the fact that one of their own could become corrupted like lancelot for instance if you want to use him as as an example that sort of shows how far they've fallen you know it's like this the shining example of what they used to be has now become this this evil this 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 omen of ill intent and uh you know they 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 take it out on him and beat him severely and he has to shed his armor in order to get the grail which which is you know very metaphorical as well it means that you know he has to let go of the old in order to embrace the new armor is not what makes you a knight so shed the armor and and focus on what what really makes you a knight which is your inner strength this this undaunted quality that Percival has above all others, you know. Mm-hmm. So 
Yeah, I, I like that. I like that scene in the water where he's drowning and he sheds the armor. Obviously, he had to do mm-hmm. that. Otherwise, he would drown. The armor would pull him down to the bottom. But it's it's um, symbolic. Uh, what do you think about that, Karen? Yeah, I like, I really enjoy all of Percival's quest. Yeah. Um, he he goes through a lot during that, as you said. He, he really transforms, I think. And it shows his faith. And his faith, it really is in Arthur, you know, when he has that vision and the voice asks, you know, well, who am I? You know, and, and he, he says, you're my Lord. And you're thinking, oh, he's going to say Jesus Christ, <laughs> my, my Lord, Arthur. And it's like, oh, that's where he's placed his faith. He's placed his faith in Arthur. Um, the king. Yeah. yeah, that's what's keeping him going. I, I want to point out one thing. Um from the the tree of woe, that whole sequence, that I another thing besides the eyeball, which is yes, very creepy. That all those <laughs> skeletons on the tree. Another thing that was really creepy is the chuckling by the child Mordred. Oh yes, 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 oh, yes. And that was Charlie Borman, so John Borman's like John, ten yeah. year old son. But that little hey, <laughs> <laughs> it was just like <laughs> that's creepy. Oh my. God, it was so freaky. I that really bothered me too. It still gets to me when I hear that. Um, yeah, I, he, yeah, he was in the documentary as well, and and yes, he yeah. speculated on why he got the role, and I think he ultimately said probably because I my dad didn't have to pay me. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so he he wouldn't admit that it's because his dad thought he had a creepy laugh. <laughs> My my own son creeps me out. Let's put him in the film, in this role. Yeah, as Mordred, this Hell Child. What does that say? Mm, <laughs> anyway, no, gosh. no, it's, it's a great. That's a great comment, Karen. Yeah, I found that uh, as a kid, I remember that was very disturbing to me. This this laughter, and then this whole scene of luring knights to their death, and this oh. carrion tree, and mm-hmm. and um, this this kid who seems to be this angel, this innocent little angelic figure, luring people to their deaths gleefully. Yeah. That is in itself very disturbing as a kid and to see that image of this golden mm-hmm. child doing these kind of horrific things. Um, it's it's oh, the yeah. omen, the omen all over again. <laughs> yeah, for real. But oh, yeah, like you were saying, after that, it's like really, you know, Percival gets, uh, you know, the grail and then he kind of has uh, Arthur drink from it and he kind of gets, you know, revived and, you know, it's on. So uh, mm-hmm. we need to but we need to find um uh, Excalibur, and you alluded to it earlier, Herm, when you had said about how <laughs> Guinevere, I don't know if at the sight of what Lancelot has turned into made her become a nun, or <laughs> she's yeah. just trying to re- repent for her sins, but yeah, she basically goes into a, you know, uh, the to become a nun, but she had saved Excalibur, and, you know, uh, Arthur obviously is hoping uh, she does have it, and her would know where it is, and he goes to her, and, you know, they have a moment there, and he gets the sword, and then off we go towards the final scene. That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, you know, that scene where uh, the knights are all back in their shining armor. Mm-hmm. Arthur is leading them. They they ride out from Camelot. And, uh, you know, you've got the wonderful music playing, very triumphant. Mm. <clears throat> and you see the land is restored again. There's cherry blossoms. And oh, yeah. it's just so beautiful. It's so masterfully shot and done you know it's very very rousing i just oh it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie 
Yeah, and the music adds to it, like you say. That's an unforgettable mm. piece of uh, film there, where they ride through those uh, falling, you know, um, uh, petals, and then mm. the cherry blossoms shedding their petals almost in deference to them. And then, you know, it's sort of like the land is now, you know, forgiven them for abandoning it briefly. And then, you know, uh, the, the music just adds to that. It's so epic. In, th- in fact, the entire movie can just be described as epic, even without the music. But that adds to its flavor. And then, mm. you know, um, there's a scene we, we forgot to mention is that Arthur, much like the scene where he's with Guinevere, he, his, his power, his weapon against evil is love. Because in spite of everything, he loves... Guinevere and he loves the land and because of that he's willing to protect and to to save it but also when Mordred shows up Mm. uh, at first introducing him to Arthur that's a very powerful scene Arthur he says I've come to claim my birthright and Arthur says I cannot give you the land but I can give you my love you know because he knows that he will abuse yeah the you know the Mm -hmm. stewardship of the land but he he offers him his love and then Mordred rejects that. That's the last thing I want from you, father. That's the only you know? thing I, I don't want. I'm like, yeah, that's, ex- that's sorry. That, those are the exact words. Oh, You're right. Man. So. <laughs> that oh, that's deep. a powerful scene. That's <laughs> damn deep, man. Yeah. Mm. And so, then we get the, even though the he re- was this. Yeah. Sorry, Billy. Continue. Uh, we we uh, get the return of Merlin here, sort of, you know, when uh, Arthur's uh, he's almost in like a amongst some like uh runes or something or some like almost like a uh like a dolmen or like a stonehenge yeah stonehenge. yeah stonehenge type thing and you know he Druids, pound yeah. pounds on one of the stones and you know we see uh, merlin who's like almost frozen or encased you know in that uh uh you know in there in the dragon you know where the dragon is and all his power comes from and he kind of like speaks to uh arthur and then almost like a dream and then like, you know, Karen said, like a nightmare to some. <laughs> and then that's I really love that because to me, that was I thought to myself, how is, you know, Arthur and just this small band of knights going to take on Mordred, this army and Morgana? Like it was impossible odds. But Morgana kind of gets uh, taken off of the uh, playing field here by Merlin, which I love that part. Mm-hmm. You guys think? Oh, yeah, that that was, uh, again, the the way of magic is very subtle and. You know, Arthur has that moment where, you know, he almost wistfully calls on Merlin, you know, where where have you been all these years, you know, and he he seems to fall asleep at the foot of one of these stones. And and of course, you know, the magic is leaving the world. The magic is becoming more dreamlike and he it's in a dream that he meets Merlin again. And, you know, they have that that conversation. Is this all you are is a, a dream, you know, a dream to some, a nightmare to others. And and that's when Merlin then, you know, works on Morgana and, and forces her into using the charm of making, uh, you know, using up her power, basically. And so uh, it's it's so I don't know, it's it's an elegant um, solution to taking her away from, you know, the battle basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. And very, Absolutely. and very, again, very beautifully filmed with the fog and, mm. and, uh, the lighting and everything. It's just, you know, it's, it's just it puts you into like another world. Yeah. It's one of the greatest acts of 
revenge from a good guy, you know, <laughs> if you can call him good, that I've ever seen in film, and I still stand by that today. There's there's some pretty damn fine, you know, uh, bits of comeuppance in film, of course, action movies or whatnot. You know, people are the revenge-driven story, Death Wish, whatever. But this is one of my favorites because this is Merlin basically taking wreaking havoc on Morgana at the very end, showing that he's not gone he's not forgotten he might be a dream but even as a dream he's deadly to his enemies and you know this is a great act of revenge because essentially he doesn't kill her he tricks her into using the charm of making um uh with such exuberance that she ages she loses uh, part of her life force and then uh, that is so abhorrent to her son mordred when he shows up in the tent to see what the causes of this mist which is going to affect the battle, by the way. So the Mer mm. Merlin had this two-pronged attack here, one against Morgana and then also indirectly helping Arthur and them in the battle right. because they were outnumbered vastly by Mordred's army. So Mordred shows up in the tent and he cannot stand the sight of this old crone who's claiming to be his mother. And he just <laughs> he beats her with an armored fist and then <sighs> strangles her to death. That's a That's... very disturbing scene. Oof, your yes. own mother, Mordred. Oh, that was horrific, yeah. Another one. That, thank you, John Borman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking, is he just that evil? He's like, I'll just kill my own mother because now she looks like she should for being what age she is. Or did he not recognize her? Like, what was he thinking there? Like, wow. I, I did wonder if the two of them had an incestuous relationship. And very if possible. Seeing her like that drove him into a fit uh, you know what's well, a good I, point yeah i don't because wasn't there a scene earlier where she was like trying to make him invulnerable to like a sword or something like that mm -hmm. she was like rub, rubbing him down with stuff and i yeah. that was a little that was a little creepy you got a good yeah point <laughs> yeah that yeah. was creepy yeah i think what you're saying karen is spot on there could there is definitely this incestuous angle it's sort of like after opening the doors of an incestuous rape scene between her and Arthur, uh, that's no holes barred now and they can go anywhere. You know, they could, there's, there's no limits. So I'm thinking that's that's implied, not shown. Thank God it's not shown. But <laughs> yeah, oh know. God, dear Lord. Oh. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, we, so we, many we, dimensions we to this film. Yeah, Borman already had, uh, you know, <laughs> gone down these crazy roads. How many times? Glad he uh, spared us from that one. <laughs> oh but yeah so yeah then you know final scene there we end up getting you know the, the arthur's you know forces you know triumph but then there's still one person left for arthur to uh go one-on-one -on -one with and of course it's mordred and it, that's a little anticlimactic i think you know that's that should have you know maybe had a i mean it's already two hours and 20 minutes the film so what else could you really do but that ended very quickly but ended appropriately you know what do you two think of that yeah well, well wait a minute we we should get to the charge of the hobo brigade first yeah oh <laughs> right yeah lancelot's return <laughs> yeah <laughs> hey i i really dug that he came in on that horse and he had mm -hmm. the kind of the dark armor on the shaggy hair and i think i think at first he had like a, a big mace and then later he had a sword but mm -hmm. he was just taking out guys left and right and, uh, yeah. you know, this was his redemption. But the beauty of it is as soon as he shows up, you know, uh, Arthur and his men who were getting trounced and were, were forming a tight circle because they were mm -hmm. about to, to get killed. As soon as they hear, you know, that Lancelot has shown up, 
what happens they you know all of a sudden their morale shoots up and they start you know fighting better and 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 harder because you know hey we've got lancelot on our side again it's it's like the same thing you know if mm. uh, the avengers are are struggling and all of a sudden thor shows up it's like hey thor's here you know okay that's mm-hmm. yeah. It turns the tide of the battle, right? So mm-hmm. he makes his appearance, and then uh, you know he's he's seeking his redemption, and they have a nice scene as he's dying, where you know he's asking Arthur, you know, he tells him, you know, the old wound, I it's it's never healed, you know, he's mm-hmm. and yeah, it's yeah. it's so beautiful, you know, because Arthur tells him, you know, you were the best, you're you're the what everything, uh, you know good in in mankind and yeah oh it just touches my heart you know (laughs) yeah we're all flawed lancelot you know was flawed and um arthur him too you know that's that's what you gotta what you gotta take from this scene and um you know the best of us you know also sometimes enters darkness dark territory Mm -hmm. sometimes and lancelot came out of that you know with a almost like a flaming sword well a flaming club at first this neanderthal looking (laughs) <laughs> angelic figure that he was but you know he turned the tide of the battle and then arthur mm-hmm. you know he basically got everything he needed before the battle he made up with guinevere and he told her everything he wanted to always tell her that you know he still loves her and um, even though the love is not returned you know he, mm-hmm. he it's like a dream of his that they would one day walk together again then he he meets lancelot again on the battlefield and um, he's there at lancelot's death and they have their sort of their connection is reestablished. And then after that, his life, you know, his time's up, basically. He and Mordred, the only way that the land can heal is with Arthur's blood being spilled and uh, as, as, as a type of balm that would heal the land, but also that at the same moment taking out uh, Mordred. Now, this, this again mirrors what happened with the, the Arthur's conception. You know, it's mm-hmm. like a synchronicity that Good sort point. of... Yeah, yeah, comes to the head there. And then they kill each other simultaneously, basically. And Arthur didn't even move out of the way or, you know, he just accepted it. You know, mm-hmm. he knew that this was the, mm-hmm. the this was Ragnarok. Uh, and then that, you know, he impaled himself on the lance, you know. Mm. And then this is a ver- this is what's very disturbing to me as a kid. He pulled himself towards Mordred for stabbing him with Excalibur oof. through the lance, through the, you know, oof. Sliding along that pole. You notice when he does that, there's like a chunk of something that falls out the back. (laughs) That's always bothered me. God. Gross. Yeah, Yeah, that's awful. (laughs) It might have been an armor plate piece, but it might also have been an organ. A kidney. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that's disturbing. Yeah, no, this movie, it it reminds you even through these heartwarming moments that, oh, no, 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 it's still a horror film mixed with fantasy. It's still horror. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly is. No, I like the fact that, you know, then his dying wish is for Percival to return the sword to the lake because... To the lady mm. of the lake, because that that it's he says that there will one day come a king again, much like like myself, that will mm-hmm. you know set things right. And then Percival is reluctant to do it. He he almost does it, and then he returns to the battlefield. And Arthur held on long enough to give him a bit of a scolding. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, you go back and you just just follow my orders. But that's a powerful scene. That's probably one of the most uh, iconic scenes um, for in general 
you know, not my favorite, but it, it's definitely a scene to remember. What happens at the end there with Percival at the lake? Karen? Oh, well, I mean, it's it's beautifully shot. Like you said, I think it's another case of when they're doing front projection and yeah. you've got that, you know, brilliant red sun. I think it's uh, uh, the rising sun. And uh, of course, it's like a zillion times bigger than it should be. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, Arthur and Percival are standing in front of it and he's telling him, you know, go throw the sword. And he initially doesn't. And he comes back and he and then we see uh, as Percival's back at, at the lake and he he just heaves that thing. He grabs the, the blade and gives it a big heave. And of course, the the arm of the Lady of the Lake comes up. And and when Percival returns, Arthur is no longer on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. But uh, when he looks out at the water, uh, and this is a beautiful scene, uh, when he sees a ship with three women in white on it, and you know Arthur is laying on the, I don't know my ship terms is it the bow of the ship I think, yeah, <laughs> the back probably. of the ship. And they're they're sailing off, and I assume I'm trying to remember my my um, Arthurian legends. I think they're sailing off to Avalon, right? The island. Yeah, of, mm -hmm. that's it. Yeah, it's Avalon. Arthur yeah. will be taken, mm -hmm. you know. And once again, the music swells, and and we mm. know that you know mm. Arthur has completed his his journey, and another king will arise someday to wield Excalibur. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then that's where the movie ends. It almost ends abruptly, but that that shows how much I enjoyed this film because I didn't want it to end there yet. But, mm -hmm. you know, of course, it's clearly the end. But then yeah. it's just per Percival gazing out over the the ocean, in effect, or or the whatever it was. Um, it's definitely the ocean, I'm thinking. Right. Gazing out at um, his king that he so revered. And uh, it ends with this powerful score just uh, wrapping everything up in a nice little bow. So mm. fantastic uh, ending. I think one of my favorite movie endings of mm -hmm. all time, really, uh, because mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's like the ending of, of, of all great films, but this, this is extra e epic, you know, with an added, you know, mm. bit of epicness to, to make it that much greater. Yeah. Fantastic absolutely. stuff. Yep. You're right on the money there. So, yeah, and I have to mention uh, London Philharmonic Orchestra. That's what this uh, awesome music was, and it was just, it's definitely worth noting because it was a huge part of the movie and definitely, you know, had it uh, step up. Uh, it was already a great movie without, you know, a great soundtrack, but it has, you know, great music to it as well. But, all right, so, you know, we've gushed about this movie now for quite a while, but any, uh, <laughs> any uh, favorite scenes or favorite characters, you know, you guys want to mention? Oh, there's just so many. Um... I tried to think of a few that I, I really wanted to call out, and I think we've talked mm -hmm. about them at length, so I won't I won't go on about them. But I do really really like uh, the scene where uh, after Arthur has fought Lancelot, where mm -hmm. he is just filled with regret. I think that's that's um, a, a really great one for me. Um, then after Arthur's restored, where the knights are riding out of Camelot, just a beautiful scene. And then, as Herm mentioned a number of times, I really like when um, Arthur meets up with Guinevere again. I think this is a scene I didn't appreciate as much in my youth, but 
now that I'm I'm older, um, I can appreciate his sentiments when he is talking to her and he tells her that he he hopes that, you know, in the afterlife when he can be just a man and not a king, you know, that they could be together and that he said, you know, it's a dream I have. Um, you can really, yeah. as a, a grown person, you can appreciate his feelings. And it was really well played because you kind of know that maybe she doesn't feel that way, but he doesn't care it, because, uh, you know, he has that love for her. And if she doesn't quite return it, he he still feels it anyway. Mm, that's a good one. Karen. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. Well phrased. There. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. That's one of my favorite scenes. But as far as favorite characters go, I'm going to have to give it to Merlin. And then <laughs> secondly, I'm going to. I mean, obviously, she's a reprehensible character in the story, but I'm going to have to give it to Morgana as <laughs> a very striking and, you know, memorable character. But then I'm yeah. also going to go for, for King Arthur. I mean, he's the linchpin that holds everything together here. Arthur, mm -hmm. you know, he's almost like a like he's a he's a more than a man. He's a symbol of the movie. Without him, there is no movie, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. and he at, at three different points in his life, his youth is his let's say for instance his uh, middle age and then mm -hmm. his old age which was brought well he wasn't really his old age but he was prematurely aged there by the land being drained of its of its vitality uh, he acted as three separate completely different characters this bumbling mm -hmm. oaf in the beginning then this man coming into his own and then this um weary old man who finds redemption all of them different characters so Arthur is actually one of my favorites mm -hmm. in this movie. So those three, I would say, I can't really pick between them. But Merlin's definitely my all-time favorite. But, you know, with so many rewatchings, I'm going to have to give it to all three of them. And then favorite scenes, yeah, Karen, the one you, you mentioned is a very heartwarming scene. But also the scene with him and Lancelot on the battlefield. That one, you know, it's like old friends coming together, you know, at the end of a of an apocalypse, <laughs> which I've never <laughs> thankfully had to do. Billy, I'll see you at the end of the apocalypse there, man. Karen, we'll have you along for the ride, but you know, um, uh, hopefully we all make it though. <laughs> well, <laughs> like I, I, I definitely won't be the guy with a full head of hair, so you'll be able to find me, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> you won't be a shaggy Sasquatch looking mm -hmm. dude. I'm fine with that. Probably a bad B.O. like Lancelot had then, but you know, um, it's it's a it's a very everything comes full circle in this movie. It's sort of like uh, wrongs are set right, and um, mm -hmm. people find uh, their full uh, the, their full life arc is is met with such stunning, you know, satisfaction on the part of the the viewer. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking just for myself personally, that you know, I find that scene very, very powerful. But then, if you talk about beauty alone, there's too many to pick from. This movie is filled mm -hmm. with beautiful scenes, and we've mentioned all of them. I, uh, maybe there's some we, that escaped us, but I, I think I mentioned uh, all of them that I that I found impactful. Mm -hmm. So fantastic movie! I, I, that's why I'm still baffled by all these people online saying that this movie is so bad it's good no this movie is so good that it's damn good you know well, it's not yeah i can't yeah, believe I mean, that in, well there's a lot of insanity online so don't worry about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah i'll just throw out i loved uh, patrick stewart leon de i love that character it wasn't a huge part 
but I loved him. I thought he was pretty good. I liked him. He, like you said, Herm, he was a little over the top, but I liked him. I liked him quite a bit. And then the scene where uh, I think it's right before Camelot is built and the round table and all that, where they come back, you know, a bunch of them meet back after a big battle and you have all the knights there and they're kind of, you know, puffing their chest out, acting like they're all like tough and everything. And Merlin shows up and kind of says to them like, Hey, great. Now you need to do this and need to do that. It's like a, a scene where it's like at night where it's very dark. Oh, and yeah. It's like, a, yeah, a campfire mm, there. Mm. And then Merlin, when he starts talking, he has his like staff there and there's like a flame shooting out of it. I mm-hmm. love that scene too. Really like that one. Yeah. That's nice. The stars are above them and everything. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Amazing yeah. scene. Yeah. Yeah. So guys, great movie and uh, wow. finally we got to talk about it at long mm. last uh, mm-hmm. recording. <laughs> I talked about it many times <laughs> before but never put this down for posterity's sake. So thanks mm-hmm. for uh, getting us to do that, Billy. Much appreciated, man. Yeah, yeah, this was great. Yeah. This was so much fun having you guys on. I loved it. It was thank thank you both for being on. This was great cuz I loved uh, your exuberance for the film too cuz you guys have been had seen this before I did and have been bigger fans longer than me. And I loved hearing you two uh, go back and forth about it. It was great. Well, it's, yeah, it's a pleasure to be able to talk about it with two people who enjoy it just as much as I do. <laughs> it's, it's one of those films you, know, you could go on and on about. Definitely. It's a delight to have, you know, to be part of this discussion, guys. So, yeah, thanks. Now I'm looking forward to our next, uh, like we've used this word a lot, epic discussion because this was certainly <laughs> a massive three hour long epic discussion mm, so yep. um yeah but um fantastic uh you know time that i had talking about this with you guys so thanks billy man mm-hmm. yeah i think we did it justice so yeah thank you both again for being on i greatly appreciate it and uh i'm gonna step out here real quick and then jump back on to close out the show so i'll be right back Okay, everybody, that wraps up another episode of the show. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening in, all the likes and retweets on Twitter and social media and stuff like that. And I want to thank uh, Karen and Herman for being on. I have a really good time talking to the two of them about uh, movies, so definitely want to have them on together again to talk about something in the future. Who knows? Maybe another fantasy film, maybe horror, maybe sci-fi. You know, who knows? But um, And then just to add to who I wanted to uh, say... You know, again, thanks for all the support. I was doing an episode a week since I think September 17th or 24th, somewhere in there. And it's just, it's way too hectic to keep doing an episode every week. So I'm going to be switching back to every two weeks for the rest of the year here. You know, two episodes in December. And then uh, I'm going to take a little bit of a break in January. Probably won't have any recordings come out in January. But then uh, back to February, you know, I'll be uh, back to full strength and having some more episodes come out every two weeks. So stay tuned for that. Take care, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.